0: Welcome to School of Movies. The Disney specials. Meet the Robinsons.
1: Everyone on this planet has a dream. The question is how far you're willing to go to make it come true. Take Lewis, for example. All right, Lewis. Knock him dead. That was a figure of speech. Please don't kill anyone. All his life, Lewis's dream was to find the family he never knew.
2: I know they're out there.
1: But the funny thing about chasing dreams is that no one can do it on their own.
2: What are you doing up here? Desperate times call for desperate measures.
1: And the journey will always take you places you never imagined.
2: Future!
1: This spring, the first visitor to the future
2: wow.
1: will discover a strange new world and a family.
2: Louis, meet the Robinsons.
1: That's even stranger.
2: Why is your dog wearing glasses? Oh, because his insurance won't pay for contacts. Frogs? Genetically enhanced frogs.
1: And his only way home.
2: I have to find my family.
1: We'll help you, kid. Oh! is about to be stolen <laughs> by a guy who gives evil a bad name. But the? You are now under my control. I am now under your control. Don't repeat everything I say. You won't repeat everything you say. This may be harder than I thought. I haven't had this much fun. From Walt Disney Pictures.
2: If I had a family, I'd want them to be just like you. You have to go back to your own time.
1: When it comes to adventure. <laughs>
2: Dude, I can't take you seriously in that hot.
1: When it comes to family...
2: I think my wife Lucille's baking cookies. Bake them cookies, Lucille!
1: When it comes to comedy...
2: I've got the caffeine patch! You can stay awake for days with no side effects. Ah! Sorry.
1: There's no time like the future. Now, my sleeve! Seize the boy! Ah! Why aren't you seizing the boy? <laughs>
0: Meet
3: the Robinsons. (laughs) Get
0: it off. Get it off. Next up is Meet the Robinsons, uh, made in 2006. Uh, It cost question mark, and it made $170 million. Now, usually when they don't release how much it cost, it's because it costs slightly more than $170 million, (laughs) which is possible here. I mean, all three of these films actually have different animation styles, as does The Wild. I mean, we know that you can't make a film in a year, so w- where were these being made?
4: I mean, They're being made by the same studio, largely. There's different teams within it. Because the same as in the uh, 2D era, once they shifted to making a new film every year, yeah, they would have several in production all oh, that at once. And
0: Pocahontas, Lion King, all at the same time.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But but yeah, like I assume they just had... Uh, different teams, each of which were trying to bring a slightly different art design look to each film. And I think the tech was probably improving a great deal as they went. The big leap I noticed is between Meet the Robinsons and Bolt. I think they got a lot of lighting and rendering technology, maybe from Pixar at that point. Mm. Maybe they did some technology sharing between the two because that film looks way better than Meet the Robinsons does. ultimately. Yeah. But see, so this is like this is the last major turning point for Disney animation so far leading up to today, because everything after meet the Robinsons or right before meet the Robinsons really is a fairly linear progression of success toward where Disney is right now when we're recording this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So basically this was their last sort of putting the foot wrong. If you don't count Winnie the Pooh in terms of the fact that even though it was a critical success, nobody saw it.
4: Yeah, pretty much. And It's not really so much a turning point in terms of... Well, it is in terms of film quality, but it
0: is
3: more (laughs) a... It's a uh,
0: turning point if you consider that Chicken Little was apparently just straight, you know, on a straight road. It was like, right, let's have a turning point and have a good film-ish sort of, kind of.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It's more a turning point behind the scenes that enables all of the good that follows. Mm. So because several major events happened for Disney animation between the release of chicken little and meet the Robinson's first thing being Eisner steps down as CEO of Disney, mm-hmm. possibly in part due to outside pressure stirred up by Roy Disney, who'd left the company a couple of years before.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah,
4: I think, I think he left Disney around 2004, maybe a, a couple of years earlier and started an active campaign to try to get Eisner removed for various reasons. He'd done the same thing to, uh, It's ironic that he'd done the exact same thing before, which is what put Eisner in power. But it's just what Roy did. But Eisner named Bob Iger as his replacement, and Iger is still in that position today. And I was talking uh, with Chicken Little. I was talking about the tense contract negotiations between Disney and Pixar at this time. Mm. It so happens that Eisner was one of the main points of friction in that relationship. He and Steve Jobs had been butting heads for years, and... Eisner had been insisting that sequels to Pixar films wouldn't be counted toward the number of films they were contractually obligated to produce, which Jobs wasn't on board with. And Eisner had even started up a new animation studio called Circle 7 to produce a Toy Story 3 outside of Pixar's control or anything, really, because Disney owns Toy Story. But... Eisner stepping down helped to get those talks moving again, which ultimately resulted in Disney outright acquiring Pixar for $7.4 billion. And as part of the terms of this agreement, Disney would remain mostly hands-off when it came to Pixar's film productions, and Ed Catmull and John Lasseter would be put in control of Walt Disney Animation Studios, which is a huge event and changes the course of everything for Disney at this point. Yeah, It, it is for mostly good and some bad reasons, one of the most important moments in both companies' recent histories. Because once in charge, Lassiter and Catmull immediately went to work taking everything that they had learned building Pixar and applying it to Disney animation. They worked to rebuild the studio's shattered morale. <laughs> they stripped out a lot of these superfluous middle management, and I hope stripped out means fired but i don't know for sure <laughs> they, well, apparently
0: they were investing like, that's the other thing during the time when they were laying off all these animators they were investing in more and more executives who's well, one of the animators said i want to earn in a year what one of what this man or i believe she was talking about eisner earns in an hour and then he came back to him and said we Can't Do That For You, which shows how much the guys at the top were actually earning relative to the people doing all the hardest and most creative work.
4: It really is pretty nuts. It's they they had a lot of of middle management just,
0: like, fluff. We're just not making end. enough which money. System. Well, I figured out a way for us to technically lower the line. <laughs> it, it's a very Hollywood way of
4: running things. I'll, I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Another thing that Lassiter and Catmull did is abolish the old system that forced directors to respond to mandatory executive notes. They, I mean, notes would may still be handed down, but it was at the director's discretion whether to work with those notes or not. They had some power in that relationship again. Um, Lasseter shut down Circle 7 that was working on that Toy Story 3 sequel, mm-hmm. and they rehired a lot of the 2D animation talent that had been let go in an attempt to eventually in a few films from now resuscitate Disney's traditional animation department Mm -hmm. and it's not that this undid all of the damage and the losses that had happened under previous leadership that like you said Alex even now it's I don't know if they can really get back what has been lost at this point a lot of the people have moved on or retired it's it's a craft that took a long time to build. But look, Lassiter and Catmull coming in set Disney Animation on a course toward one of the greatest periods of success it has ever experienced. So I honestly think these two saved it.
0: Yeah. It's the, only the first time we they've care ever about made Disney a- animation now. It's the first time they've ever made a billion with Frozen. They bought Marvel, they bought Star Wars. They'd have to do some pretty bad things now to start losing money.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not even count- counting and all the other just like I mean, Disney's an enormous company co- covering a wide span of entertainment mm-hmm. at this point beyond just film output. They are so enormous that they could fail dramatically on one of those axes and still be perfectly fine.
5: Mm-hmm. That actually is one thing that suggests if they did ever want to bring back 2D animation, it would be worth the pop because ultimately if they want to invest in restarting that that. Um, skill again widely it doesn't matter if they make something that loses money
0: they can afford it and Mickey Mouse has got deep pockets
5: yeah absolutely yeah. a quick question by the way Dan you said about the um, the, the negotiations for the, the Pixar uh, distribution rights one yeah. of the points of contention was that um, they didn't want sequels to count towards the number of movies that they were supposed to make in any given year
4: yeah
3: Yep. So
5: they were telling Pixar, "You've got to come up with original IPs. None of this sequel crap."
4: In, in a way, I think it was mostly an effort of saying that we can make. I mean, because Eisner was one of the guys who, if I remember correctly, was pushing for cranking out direct video direct video sequels of
0: Disney films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which uh, Lasseter put the clappers on? Apparently, there was going to be a sequel to Chicken Little. Oh yeah, no, there was, and there was, there one first. Nobody it wants it. Oh, also, yep. we 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 didn't get to see Meet the Robinsons two colon first date, real real name for it, and mm-hmm. a sequel to the Aristocats, which I'm yep. assuming they would have had uh, um, John Goodman playing uh, Thomas O'Malley for.
4: No, no question. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this was this was a huge shakeup,
0: and it has led us to where we are now. Yeah. So I mean. Right. The actual Meet the Robinsons is going to be a film most people haven't seen. I That's think, true. I think, roundabout. This it made $170 left, million, like, and, and people haven't exactly rediscovered it on DVD since.
4: Yeah, it's left almost like zero cultural footprint.
0: Yeah. I've never heard anyone talk about it. about it. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of time people talk about The Jungle Book or Cinderella or, or Snow White or... Um, <laughs> I've had more love thrown at me for The Rescuers Than I've ever heard about uh, uh, Meet the Robinsons. Maybe that'll change around. Maybe we'll hear some Meet the Robinsons uh, love as a result of this. But um, it's based on a 29-page 1990 picture book, A Day with Wilbur Robinson, by William Joyce. Uh, By the way, I don't know if you uh, saw that uh, the high school is called Joyce Williams High School. Ah, Nice. Wherein a boy named Lewis spends the day with his best friend's family. He meets one wacky character after another. The end. Everything else, including the future and both twists, was added by Disney. They took a 29-page picture book of wackiness and turned it into a Disney movie. That makes this a silly book sandwiched into a Disney movie not entirely comfortably. The protagonist is a sweet-natured, bright kid in search of a family, which is easy to engage with. The script is light and quirky with some great delivery at times. And then right in the middle of the film is a completely inconsequential hour of unmitigated whimsy with no direction or storytelling actually going on. Then it kind of just wraps itself up and an unexpectedly poignant ending hits you in the heart, making sitting through the rest worthwhile for me. The ending just wham, whams it home. Agreed. Um, Spoilers for the majority who haven't seen this, we're going to be talking about the film scene by scene in full revelation of the ending because it's frankly a meaningless film without talking about the actual implications of what's going on here. So um, it's about a 12-year-old kid named Lewis who is an orphan, lives in an orphanage. He gets, you know, he's he's an inventor and he wants to get, it's the usual orphan story if he wants to get picked up by prospective parents, but at 12, he's getting on a bit now. Like when you when you hit that age, that's when you start to feel rejected, and you start to feel like you know maybe I will no, never be adopted. I'm just going to be a child of the state until they turn me out and, and can't look after me anymore. Yeah, uh,
4: and he knows that statistically that's where this is headed for him too. Yeah,
0: yeah. He, he's he's in, in full awareness of that. He's an inventor. He he wants to get picked up, but his wacky inventions actually drive away the uh, prospective parents who come to visit him. So he's going to a science fair, and uh, he's got his it's his it's his mind. Um, seeing device, like he can see, he can look at your memories and have them shown on a TV screen, which is obviously kind of an awesome invention if you can make it work. Of course, he can't. At this early stage, it's 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 just potential, and there's a lot about untapped potential in this film. Then he gets visited by a boy named Wilbur Robinson, who. Um, I mean, he's he's your Marty McFly type kid, you know. He's like, oh, I just, maybe I don't have a future. I mean, I just can't take that kind of rejection. <laughs> he's obviously in search of a family, and Wilbur, for s- reasons, takes him into the future to do a thing. And that's about the point when you will sort of lose most of the audience because it's like, right, I've got to take you to the future and it's all crazy and wacky and interesting here. And then he st- he meets Wilbur's family who are, as in the book, a bunch of madcap insane people. <laughs> then at the end, the actual sort of through flow of it is that there's this guy with a moustache and a bowler hat who keeps sort of creeping around trying to change time because he's stolen one of the two time machines. And in this future utopia, because it is a utopia, um, which is very much like Futurama as well. Only Futurama has far more of the mundane. And there are so many great gags in Futurama that had already been done and used before um, Meet the Robinsons came along. In fact, I think Futurama was sort of rounding up its its fourth and final series at that point, around right about this time. Uh, there's a guy with a bowler hat. He's trying to change time, and then eventually he succeeds, and then it becomes Bowler Hat Land. And then Will realizes... That he is, in fact, the patriarch of this family. He is the father that he never gets to see, um, but he's talked about quite a lot. There's a nice little bit of misdirection where um, his son, for it is he, Wilbur, um, says he looks like uh, Tom Selleck. And there's a lot of sort of like trying to keep this, you know, unseen father under wraps. And then he finds out that the guy with the bowler hat is Goob, his roommate from the orphanage, who... Because he misses a shot in baseball, then uh, is not picked up by prospective parents and then lives for the rest of his life in this now abandoned orphanage, growing more bitter and twisted until he attempts a pathetic revenge on the boy who screwed his entire life up, which is Lewis. I think he tries to throw eggs and TP his house. And then he meets the hat who gives him the whole idea for changing the future and making himself a – It's difficult to tell with Goob because he's so unfocused as a character, but the end result is that young Lewis gets to meet old Lewis, gets to meet middle-aged dad Lewis, who gives him some good advice about keep moving forward and... Just don't let the fact that you were abandoned – in this case, it was that I was abandoned on the doorstep of this orphanage. My parents didn't want me. I don't have a family. I've been rejected. It's to just let go of that and move forwards. He then takes that back into the past, tells um, the bowler hat man that, and tells Goob that. And as a result – I mean, technically, the bowler hat man should have disappeared, Biff style. Because uh, it changes the future it's very back to the future rules, in fact it's very back to the future two rules in that it doesn't make any <laughs> sense, yeah. and then the future changes and and it goes back to it being great and this this sort of lovely family that he's sort of gotten to know now um he wants to stay with them, but then they say, you know just go back back to your old old life and you'll meet us again sometime, which is a sort of a lovely moment, and then he goes back and then The woman who was checking his memory device turns out to be the grandmother from this family, and then he meets the grandfather that he has now met in the future, and then they adopt him, and he also meets his wife as a child, and because he's already been to the future and sees this potential realized he just embraces this new family. They give him his own observatory, his own laboratory. He's finally got a family. It's a really wonderful ending. And it they they don't overplay it. They don't mel- make it a melodrama, but it's just got this warmth to it. And um, then there's a little dedication about keep moving forward. And that turns out to be attributed to something that Walt Disney said, which has an impact on the fact that they are now moving forwards in terms of technology, in terms of animation. And it is a much more... Um, hopeful way of moving Disney forwards rather than just going, ah, no one wants the storybook, screw that, which is the beginning of um, Chicken Little. So it's kind of like you watch these two films back to back, it starts off terrible, and then it ends up really kind of wonderful. But there's a lot of lunacy to get through to get there. My God, this film. So yeah, that's basically what happens to the folks who haven't seen it. Now let's go through the film. Dan had you seen this much before
4: i had i had seen this one at some point not when it came out i think several years later and i was surprised to find that i like i was expecting to hate it i was i was not going in fairly minded at that time and i actually came out thinking you know what, this wasn't bad it's like this wasn't great but this wasn't bad and i like it more now even than i did then mm. despite as you said there is a lot of crazy gagged style lunacy that happens in the middle that kind of overwhelms.
0: And uh it's a very it, strong flavor and everything in this movie tastes like it. Yes. Indeed. Yes.
5: I think I I summed it up as sugar fueled nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the, it's that thing of throwing as many Skittles at the screen as you can and mm. um it, you know it hits you in the face quite a lot.
4: That's true. It, the good the thing that makes this film at least work where chicken little doesn't come close is that while there is still a lot of emphasis on those gags especially in that middle stretch and yeah. a lot of them do still land with a thud some of them are funnier than uh, funnier than others but but um Steven Anderson the director of this one does a much better job of prioritizing character and story where it needs to be yeah. and mm. clearing the gags out of the way when it's time for an emotional moment yeah yes. he manages that sort of drama and sincerity much better and, and doesn't deflate those moments with forced comedy
0: yeah mm. there's a it's a more natural wind up and release in that um when uh young um Lewis is showing off his peanut butter and jelly gun and these two prospective parents are getting very nervous. It's like, well, obviously he's got a peanut allergy. The guy s- gets splattered with peanut butter, starts swelling up. And then there's that slow taking you down as, as uh, Lewis realizes he's screwed it up yet again. And that this certainly isn't the first time that that's happened. And he sort of slopes off to the roof and feels lonely and then talks to kind of a mother figure of the, uh, the woman who runs the orphanage. Uh, it's got, it's got a, a pace to it which chicken little never ever achieves mm. it, it's
5: something that um that chicken little does not have at all the couple of times that it actually attempts to have an emotional moment and it's mm. actually something that i uh, i mentioned with regards to uh the warcraft film that we saw recently mm-hmm. when there is an emotional moment it it doesn't mean In Meet the Robinsons, it's not just that the emotional moments are allowed to happen. It's that they are allowed to stick. It gives you time. It gives you a little bit of a a quiet afterwards so that you can absorb it properly. And that is absolutely essential. If you're going to put emotional stuff in your movie, you Mm -hmm. can't then immediately cut to, and then the hen exploded and the feathers went everywhere. And, oh, my God, wasn't it hilarious? Mm -hmm. Because, right, it... When your emotions are all up and down like that, that's not healthy. That's not something, you know, that there are people who take medications for that kind of thing. It's not stop feeding kids the idea that your emotions should be up and down and all over the place and turning on a dime. Kids' emotions do that anyway. Yeah. They are supposed to, as they get older, develop um,
0: Ways to manage that
5: exactly, and 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 you know their brains are supposed to grow down roots uh, where where they can ride these tidal waves of emotion gradually and mm. um, and and you know handle it in a way that doesn't involve just explosions of hilarity and devastation within half a second of each other. Yeah.
0: Your story, I mean, by and large if you're telling a story without empathy being one of your primary goals, like it, your your subject, your your needs to be someone that the, the or at least some characters need to be some people that the audience go, oh, "Okay, I can sort of relate to this." If your remit is just bang bang bang, bang like that just the whole way through, mm. that then because empathy's Jeffrey not even going to enter into it. Told. Yeah. Yes. It is effectively our job as adults to teach children how to, you know, to control those emotions and to be able to process them. And animated films are one of the best gateways for that because they give the building blocks for a child to be able to explore something which is quite powerful and quite overwhelming – in a safe environment in a way that makes things clear. So, you know, whenever people sort of rag on Disney and go, Oh, this is, they've made everything all Disney. Disney are extremely accomplished at actually visiting some very dark areas in a way that allows you to um, process them as a young child in a way that a lot of other companies are less practiced at, have less finesse. And, you know, most of the time, if, if, if they're going to be accomplished, they aren't going to be aiming that at children. Mm.
5: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Meet the Robinsons and Bolt, to some extent, they deal with abandonment issues. Mm. They deal with the feeling that you're you've been rejected, and uh, uh, you know, slightly different in Bolt, and we'll talk about that when we come to that one. But the fact that Lewis has been convinced his whole life that. A, nobody has ever wanted him, including his own mother, and B, nobody will ever want him because the evidence so far suggests that they won't. And what he is given by virtue of the fact that Wilbur takes him to meet this wonderful family that he will one day have, he is given the ability to relax and stop uh, obsessing about the fact that that will never happen because he knows it will so he can now lean into it and just enjoy his life as it carries on
0: yeah. um, living the, in the moment there's a very pointed uh like throwaway gag where it there's a sign up for today land riffing on disney's tomorrowland um that they're part of that part of their theme park the idea being that in Tomorrowland we look forward to the future but here in the future it's today so it's we're very much living in the moment
5: yeah um, I mean, one of the when when people are dealing with um, with sort of reconciling issues of of feeling like they've been abandoned and rejected their whole life and it can cause some people intense difficulties, um, you know, throughout their adulthood. Um, but one of the ways that it's it's sometimes treated is to to get people to kind of go back and. Almost re-parent themselves mm. and and teach them now as an older, more logical person. You know, teach that child that's still in there ways of handling this that don't involve necessarily the the ways that the the very young child that had no other option would have responded to it. And Lewis does exactly that. His his older self teaches him something that he then passes on to. Goob who I I kind of you could interpret Goob as a, an aspect of Lewis the aspect of himself that is really resentful and angry and and um, furious about having been left mm. um, and he changes the entire course of his future by doing that and it, it's it's presented as kind of a very simple um, uh, unpicking and it only takes a line or two um, but it's it, it does kind of have all of this, but everything's got to be incredibly bright colours and we have to have this bit in the middle where everything's madcap and and all over the place. And um, it, it's just, it, it, it has a bookend feel to it. it. It very much came across to me as this, this sort of central, uh, basic story that they had, had taken as their starting point was in the middle and then they'd kind of wrapped a Disney movie around it.
2: Yeah. Okay, that should do it. It's so exciting! Let her rip, Lewis!
1: Quickly! Uncle Joe can't hold on much longer. Everybody ready?
2: Go, Carl. Oh, no. No. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You failed! And it was awesome. Exceptional. Outstanding. From failing you learn. From success? Not so much. If I gave up every time I failed, I never would have made the meatball cannon. I never would have made my fireproof pants.
1: Ah, still working out the kinks.
2: Like my husband always says.
4: There is one moment in the middle in that cacophony section that is actually, I think, maybe my favorite in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that makes me like this movie so much is that it's when the Robinsons are at dinner and they give Lewis's sandwich gun a try, which we've already seen it fail mm. like at the mm. beginning of the film. And again, it blows up in his face. And just like last time, he apologizes profusely for yet another failure. And we've been seeing him do that throughout the whole movie. But the Robinsons congratulate him on his yeah. failure. Like, they earnestly applaud his attempt because failures are just a step on the road toward success. And that's a lesson I almost never heard emphasized anywhere growing up. Yeah. Uh, it it flies in the face in, of how most of our education systems are structured. But it is such a valuable lesson. And it, The greatest teacher failure is. I mean, it may sound cliche, but the important thing is really that you try. And I love that this movie is all about that despite all of its like the problems the film has and the kind of exhausting zaniness of that middle section i love the thematic core of this one
5: yeah absolutely it reminded me in fact of um and this is this is possibly a little bit apocryphal but you know about the the uh the quote from edison about the light bulbs
0: yeah. yeah, he probably said it, it spoke a lot it, about it, the light bulbs. So sorry,
5: okay, Just
0: narrow it, it down. It
5: bas- basically, the fact that it took. Um, it could took you say it in-, it in
0: Matt's Edison voice from New Century? <laughs> <laughs> if I could, I
5: would, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't. Um, but basically, the the the, the quote lies over the fact that um, it took Edison over 100 tries to to work out how to make a a functioning light bulb. And somebody was uh, talking to him about it afterwards, and they said, how does it feel to have failed over 100 times to invent the light bulb? And his response was, I didn't fail. I now know over 100 ways to not make a light bulb. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, Edison may have been a bit of a dick, but that's a pretty good quote
0: um meet the robinsons and science it is as at times as confused as cloudy with a chance of meatballs over the disparity between the central message that science is great and the delivery method which is the chaotic physics defying daydreams of young children being the ultimate creativity fuel so in the case of cloudy with a chance of meatballs it's Science is fantastic. There is almost nothing better on this planet than, than to be someone who comes up with something new that you can make people happy with, and then that, that is presented as wrapped, hot, fresh, cooked hamburgers falling from a mile up in the air and then landing lightly on the pavement for people to pick up and eat. Um, it's, it's madness. That's the stuff of dreams. That's that's the opposite of science. That's the opposite of physics. But it's both this and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs have an in, immense heart, and both of them have the scientists being supported by their families so ultimately I, th- I suppose it's kind of like the delivery method is sort of neither here nor there if, if the u- ultimate point is to you parents in the audience if your kid does something that you quite, can't quite understand but like seems like they might be trying really hard for the love of god please support them
4: and i feel like there is something to the zany dreamlike quality of presenting an idea that can get kids on board with it like yeah. it, it, it's why I, I kind of despite the insanity of the middle section of
0: this movie the child talking about it but we never we're never being specific we're I, gonna I, be in, the thing, in a i can't second. remember I will...
4: specific points there's just so many they happen so fast together that yeah. it's just a blur but there's <laughs> okay. this dr seussian childlike whimsy of the future that like of this vision of the future that this film has i mean it I'm not only does on it Dr. tie Seuss. yes. Yeah. Not only does it tie nicely into the movie's central theme of optimism looking to the future like this is a world where we'll travel in bubbles mm. but also like for a kid I mean this is the sort of thing even Disney himself used to do with Tomorrowland he yeah. presents a wild optimistic like it's not as gr- less grounded than Star Trek vision of the future that is it is wild and unbelievable but it's something that gets you excited and you want to work toward that future. Like just like a exciting unrealistic space movie could get a kid excited enough about the idea of space to pursue being an astronaut or studying rocket science or something like that. Like there are so many people who have realistic professions and modern dreams that were started by the unrealistic ones of childhood that I I feel like there's something to this and even the cloudy with a chance of meatballs nonsense that is uh, still kind of inspiring in that childlike way.
0: Yeah. Um, Goob, uh, this is another, uh, I suppose, a point of weakness. He appears to be just a collection of quirks stemming from stalled emotional development, but none of these are consistent with his child self. He can. Barely read, he can't tell time, and he has a six-year-old girl's unicorn pink binder for his scribbled checklist. He has no ability to relate to people, and he seems to have been raised in an isolation chamber watching old cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a really kind of fun character to watch but the correlation between him and this fairly down to earth little baseball playing kid back in time it, 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 it kind of doesn't make sense they haven't really developed his character and he's so cartoonish in his mannerisms and behavior it's it, it plays into more the mid section of this film of just the the ludicrousness. Like nothing seems real in this middle bit. Yeah.
5: Although technically speaking, he was raised in an isolation chamber watching cartoons because after the orphanage shut down, he stayed there for years and years and years and years until he was an adult with nothing to keep him company but the radio. Yeah. Um. And then he is effectively being puppeteered by a hat that wants to take over the world.
0: Should have had a Glados voice.
5: Yes. Totally should have had a, <laughs> a Glados
0: voice.
5: Yeah. It does seem a little bit, sort of, we started with supervillain and worked backwards Mm. from there.
0: Fan theory. Did Lewis just fall asleep and dream everything in the middle of this movie? Because that would make more sense than it actually happening.
5: Oh, my God. What? You're right.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's everything he wants, and it's it has the uh, the, the whimsical uh, logic of a a small child who, say, would come up with Ax Cop or yeah. um you know Adventure Time.
5: But like I said about the the idea that now he knows that family exists for him in time, yeah, he can relax and just you know work on enjoying his life to, and getting there.
0: Even with the end of his dream, taking him back to the point where he was abandoned as a child and and asking himself, would I really want to speak to this woman? What would I even ask her? Because whatever she has to say is not going to satisfy me.
5: Mm. And ultimately, that's one of the ways in which you can reconcile the difficulties that you're having in the present, you know, come to terms with what happened in the past, be inspired by what's going to happen in the future, and bring them both together to inform on how you choose to deal with your present Situation.
0: Did you just Rafiki me?
5: I can come downstairs and hit you on the head with a stick. If that-
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think you did, <sighs>
4: okay. he, he has very prophetic dreams. But I, I think it. I think the film works in either case, whether yeah. it's you see it as literal or not. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's a lot to sort of argue in the favor of the fact that like, um, if if he if it is all just a dream, then he just happens to meet the people that he dreamed of immediately afterwards. Um, but I mean, that, that's not really the, the, the plot of the film. The plot of the film is that it's time travel and that he does go to this mad place with, oh, should we just describe the whimsy just like one bit after the next, just as fast as we possibly can? <laughs> Like he meets, he's got two uncles who live in plant pots outside the door and are constantly bickering with each other about who which door button to press. And they both look like Andy Dick in sunglasses.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Making yeah. sense yet? Yep. No, uh, that there's... doesn't make any sense at all. How, okay. how does that even work? Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> He's got one uncle who likes to launch himself out of cannons and race trains inside and then smashes his head against a wall in a way that would just cripple him. Just like break his neck immediately. And then this marble pedestal like pillow falls upon him in a way that would break everyone in his body. But that's all fine because it's all just a wacky joke that you find. There's a disco granny. Did you see the disco gag?
3: So the
0: disco: game. disco game. There's a, a, a granddad who like scribbles a face on the back of his head and walks around backwards with his clothes on backwards. Um, one of his uncles is Adam West, who's a pizza delivery boy, and also seemingly a spaceman. But it's Adam West doing that, and here's the thing, because it's so ludicrous and he's so serious about it, like turn all of this craziness into that one character. And then you've got a much stronger midsection of the movie. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that would go, but basically I would just much rather have seen... uh, I think it's probably too late now for Disney to do this, but a Disney film in which Adam West is one of the main stars. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit too late for that now.
1: Adam West! Hey, kids! Batman!
2: Dad, that's not the real Batman!
0: Of course I'm Batman.
1: See, here's a picture of me with Robin.
2: Who the hell's Robin?
1: Oh, I guess you're only familiar with the new Batman movies. Michelle Pfeiffer? Ha! The only true Catwoman is Julie Newmar, Lee Merriweather, or Eartha Kitt. And I didn't need molded plastic to improve my physique. Pure West. And how come Batman doesn't dance anymore? Remember
0: the Bat-to-See?
4: Nice meeting you. Just keep moving. Don't make eye contact.
0: Why didn't they get Adam West to play the mayor in Lego Batman? Uh, What other family members are there that I'm missing? Uh,
5: Franny teaches frogs to sing.
0: Yeah, this is his wife. She teaches frogs to sing. And not only does she teach them to sing, but they're like um, Harry Connick Jr. Goodfellas frogs. Like, there's a bit where they throw somebody in the back of a car and they're looking down on him like Martin Scorsese Goodfellas, like that same bit with the Godfather shrew in Zootopia and all of those other Godfather moments in things like Shark Tale. Like, stop, stop doing Godfather and Goodfellas in animated kids' movies! They have no place being here! There's no cultural reference point for children! Gangsters aren't funny!
4: Continue. it's just another example of that first idea like <laughs> what's the first thing that like oh they're kind of mobsters let's make it like the godfather and no one thinks any further to try yeah. to come up with another idea
5: are these all coming from the same executive who's just a really big godfather fan Who do they is this like flipping <laughs> john peters's polar bear fighting everybody
0: <laughs> is this goob that they put in the trunk is it like goob sleeps with the fishes are they gonna <laughs> You know, Fish Out of Water sleeps with the fishes now. They they killed him. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, yeah, so uh, the what like he also has a crazy robot who's a bit I think the actual design of this guy kind of reminds me of that other forgotten rubbish uh bland movie from the uh, from this era. Robots. Do you remember that one?
4: Yeah, I, I had that thought too. It looked very similar in design.
0: Yeah. A little bit of bender in there, but uh but none of the charisma of bender um
5: martin short's robot character from treasure
0: Mm, yeah yeah ben and um yeah a lot of screaming they all have dinner together and so just imagine all of these wacky people sitting around the table all like you know shouting off non-sequiturs at each other (laughs) it's like it makes the mad hatter's tea party seem positively bolted down and that's not a good thing and then there's one bit when they start throwing food at each other, and then the the guy who like launches himself out of cannons gets up on the table and starts throwing food at Franny the wife and then the, but they like the 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 screen goes all desaturated and then they start speaking out of sync because it 's like all of those kung fu movies in the seventies with the bad dubbing. Which now no one remembers because they have now passed out of living memory. And why would you do this gag in two thousand and six? It doesn't make sense. Terrible bit. We have had a whole bunch of really high quality, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, was six years before this. Hero, House of Flying Daggers, some really like you know, like people had been get with DVD. People had been getting subs, not dubs. That gag has no place in this movie!
5: Because the ideas are coming from executives that don't watch modern movies.
0: But I don't know, maybe it was in the stupid colouring book, the, the, the original like picture book that, they, that this was in, like, you know, time for spicy Italian sausage! And then they throw food at each other. For me, there is almost nothing you can do more obnoxious in a movie than wasting food.
2: Ha, surely that...
1: sister your skills are strong but not strong enough
2: your words do not threaten me brother then
1: enough words now the real battle
2: begins
0: Oh, I forgot about, there's like a fat uncle, and he's just a big, I would say walking fat joke, but he appears to be immobile, something which Pixar did extremely well in Wall-E. There's a point where he, he, like, oh my god, Uncle Wilbur's got the toast. It's not when Wilbur, Uncle Joe's got the toast, but he can't have his peanut butter and jelly. He's going to throw a fit if he can't eat right away. It's like, wow. On behalf of everybody slightly above the average weight in the audience, I am sorry for that one. So yeah, he's but not
5: even treated like a person. He doesn't no, get any lines. He doesn't say anything. They treat him he's like a fat. baby.
0: That's the joke. He just can't stop eating. But yeah, so they're throwing food all over the place. Now, either a cornucopia technology exists in the future. So there are no hungry people. And so you can waste food and just throw it all over the place and let the butler, the robot butler, pick it all up off the ground or like the little robot Roombas that go around and do that. Um, Which would explain, you know, they all have a toast. Like, they pour champagne into glasses and then go, a toast, and then they just pour it on the ground. Like, mad people. No one, like, it's, what am I watching at this point?
5: And they throw it in their faces. Oh, they throw it in their faces. Pouring it on the ground would almost make sense because then it's like, like, you know, pour one out for the people who aren't here.
0: No, they throw it in their faces. Let's just do whatever we can, whatever we want. Yay, all the time. That family would drive me insane. I would be, if I was Cornelius, which is his, like, pretend name, um, that he takes immediately after getting back from the uh, future, uh, if I was Lewis, I would just be like, how can I prevent being part of this family? But then how can this dark future be averted?
5: I think that's kind of the point, though. It's, it, it's you know, this, this family that's so madcap and over the top, and, and the average person would look at that and go, oh, dear God, how hmm. did I end up with these people? They're not. Insane because they are—they're his people. They're his family. They have that. But um, no, he that- doesn't behave like that.
0: He doesn't waste food because it's funny. He just sprays PB and J about the place because he can't keep his machine under control.
5: No, but the the point of, of the um, the sequence with him in the orphanage, scaring away all the protective all the prospective adoptive parents, yeah. is that he. He has he's learned to curb himself so that potentially somebody might meet him and think, actually, I might quite like to take this child home. The problem with that is that he's then going to end up in a home where he's going to have to curb himself for the rest of his life and the beauty of this family is that he doesn't he can just be him he can he can splatter he can mess he can create Mm. he can you know stand in his observatory and look up at the stars and not have to think about how do i stop being me so that Mm. i can keep fitting in with these people who've taken me in
0: but he splatters by accident they splatter on purpose the other possibility
5: that's true
0: that there are (laughs) people who are hungry in this world and they're wasting this lovely food for no reason at all Um, Or the third possibility, they just didn't think too much about it. They were just like, kids like food fights, don't they? Animal House, I love that film. This is starting a food fight. Food fight! Most obnoxious thing you can do. Jesus. And this is not me coming from a house which was, you know, really anxiety-ridden about waste. I'm just very aware. This is not me being a bleeding heart. It's just saying, don't put food fights in movies. God damn it! Anyway... On a side note, in a few weeks' time, we will be reviewing the worst animated film ever, *Food Fight*. I think if I ever wanted to just
4: like kill you, I could just show you footage of a food fight, food fight in a discotheque, and you yeah. would die.
0: Probably why I didn't <laughs> love. Probably why I didn't love *Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs*. <laughs> it's it's not the disco that I hate. It's the fact that it's basically just the coordinated dancing because. Uh, it's a basic series of movements you can program into every character and just go, look, we've got a disco gag. We didn't, couldn't do this before. We'd have to hand animate every single one of them. But now we can. And it's such an easy gag to keep doing. I've talked about this many times before. So, you know, they chucked in, like, even funnier than a disco gag is a disco granny. Don't know why.
4: Yeah, yeah. Maybe, no, it's the I, same kind of easy joke as the Godfather thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I also observed that it's like the Addams Family, as in, like, everyone's being weird, but without the dry delivery. Adam West has the dry delivery. Everyone else is just going, Bleh! all the time. It's, yeah, take that away. You have the monsters. <laughs> uh, but, um, Sharon, you actually were kind of bothered by the whole goob thing. Did it end up in a, in a way that you were like, no, that's acceptable, or just the whole idea of his development?
5: It, it well, did, yeah. Now, I, what I said initially at the beginning of the movie was that, that it seemed like they'd taken a starting point of... Mm-hmm. villain that wants to take over the world and worked their way back through various, you know, emotional disorders and and um, possible mental health issues to messed up childhood. But actually by the end of the film and and apart from the whole being puppeteered by the mad hat that wants to take over the world, um, which was a little bit bizarre, um, I I, I liked the way that resolved itself with um, uh, Lewis giving him the... It was a a bit oversimplified. What am I saying? It was a lot oversimplified um, (laughs) in the idea that um, basically you have a choice. You can either um, stay miserable about the thing that happened that apparently destroyed your life or you can just let it go. Um, A, if you have the kind of life where something has happened or a series of some things, which is more likely, has happened to mess up your life. It's not that straightforward to let them go. Um, there are it's, it's actually quite difficult to learn to let them go, especially if you're an anxiety-ridden kind of person, which with that kind of background you probably would be. Um, it's in your nature to fixate on things and not let them go. And if it was that simple, we'd do it. Um, (laughs) Thanks for that, let it go Oh, it's that easy Um, The other thing is as well if the message for Goob is you just have to let this thing go he doesn't have to let it go because Lewis fixes it for him Lewis wakes him up so that he can catch the ball, the incident then doesn't occur for him to have to let go of it so technically speaking that's a really important lesson that he didn't learn so what, which is it? Do you want him to learn the lesson of let it go, which you have oversimplified deliberately? Or do you want to fix it so he never has to learn that lesson in the first place? So
0: Because time travel.
5: Because time travel. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I kind of it wasn't as satisfying as I would have liked it to be. But the direction that they took it in was better than I thought it was going to be
0: so what would have had to happen was that uh, lewis would try to make to stop prevent it and then goo would have had to undergo it and then lewis would have to console him and say i'm i'm really really sorry this happened it is my fault um and then somehow passed on the whole you can't let you know I, I, I I've been thinking a lot about the fact that I was abandoned here, and just basically like voiced what becomes apparent at the end yeah. and actually voiced that to goob. Yeah. It's maybe a little heavy for the kids, especially with everything that's happened already in the film, mm. but the, if you're actually trying to if you're really committed to this message, that's how you got to do it, yeah, also,
5: just let it go and forget about it, and it doesn't matter. It's Don't worry the, about it's it in the past. Um, Is not the same thing as keep moving forward. Yeah. Keep moving forward, you take the hit, you take the hurt, you work with it, you process it, you move on.
0: Oh, it's, yes, the past can hurt.
5: Yeah, it's <laughs> not the same thing as, um, you know, whatever, they beat you up, Celavi, the bruise will heal.
0: Just, just forget about, just, it. Just, just rings, about it. Just rings, stop talking about stop it. Just stop telling everybody about it. Stop telling everybody about it because you're bringing everybody down, goob, yeah. as opposed to we're worried about you, goob.
3: Yeah, exactly. Oof.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mishandled there. Also, like, the, none of the family recognise him. None of like they have yeah, to literally to the see point his hair. Where Franny
5: where, is yeah. disturbingly affectionate with him, considering <laughs> that that's her future husband.
0: Yeah. Oh, we, we just stay with us. It's great. Yeah. And then, and then suddenly, um, his son shows everyone his hair. And they're like, "Whoa. Okay, hair. That's different." And then, uh, they, but that's the thing. Franny knew him since he was twelve. You've known me since I was nineteen, Sharon. If my nineteen year old self turned up, you'd know who I was. And if you'd known me since I was twelve, I'm gonna go ahead and guess you'd know who I was. But that's everyone's a good point. And spicy it. Italian sausages and giant squids and giant T Rexes for no reason. <sighs> that's a
4: good I hadn't actually thought about that, but you're right. She's known him since she was a little kid, voiced by Jesse Flowers. Like she would recognize little him again. You're kidding. She's voiced by Toph. Yeah, the little, her little version of her.
0: That's yeah. adorable. Yeah. Wow. Um, but, you yeah, know, if nothing else, they'd have photos. It's not <laughs> like She'd true. have to look back and go, oh, I can sort of remember what you look like. Oh, remember this time we rode the Ferris wheel. Here's a photo of you when you were 12 and a half. God's sake. Like, basically, here's the thing. Maybe not anyone else. Maybe the the grandparents are now unable to recognise him because he's just a different person in their eyes. But Franny would get it.
5: Hang on a minute. No no no, because I said this, remember at the very end, he meets Franny for the first time and he technically is never introduced to her as Lewis. So you could argue that she might not make the connection. His parents, though, his adoptive parents...
0: Yeah, they knew he was called yeah. Lewis.
5: His his mother, the woman who, who becomes his adoptive mother, she yeah. knows him as Lewis. She is introduced to
0: him as Lewis. Yeah, but they're too to busy disco fair. dancing and drawing faces on the back of their heads. <laughs>
4: <laughs> to, to be fair, they are very old, insane people.
0: <laughs> That's a <laughs> weak way. I know, it is. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so but like, I, like, when everyone gets it suddenly it's all like it makes perfect. they're like oh my god franny we gotta prevent a major paradox but a paradox has already occurred guys because just like in back to the future 2 lewis has come out of his own time and into a future where he's now a 42 year old man he'd have disappeared and no longer exist in that timeline
4: yeah it's true the Unless instance you apply any like yeah. time travel logic to any of this, it falls apart immediately.
0: Unless it's based on quantum probability that he will return to his time, and as soon as the probability of that drops to a dangerous level, the timeline might correct itself. But, uh, I mean, it's all just speculative anyway, but ultimately there's got to be some kind of rules. So yeah, I mean, yeah, if you can if you can accept Back to the Future 2 and everything that happens in that with old Marty and young Marty and old Jennifer and, and I'm oh. a- then you can accept the time travel in this, because it's about the same stuff.
4: Yeah, and it serves the story at least, even if it doesn't entirely make time travel sense. That's usually my policy with time travel movies. If the choices made that don't make any kind of logical sense serve the story, I'm fine to just say, "All right, fine, let's go, and keep Mm. going.
5: (laughs) Unless it's that you suddenly devised a rule that wasn't there before, or break a rule that you appeared to set up from the beginning to get yourself out of a Script writing corner.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Agreed. Yes. The other film that this is like, we actually just happened to see the day before, Sharon. Days of Future Past. Yes. Old Mm. Charles gives young Charles hope. And it's effectively, um, it was described by James McAvoy as, as looking at yourself in the mirror and giving yourself a really good talking to. That's what that is. The potential for the future being able to go back and positively influence The person in the past even if it is simply a metaphor for being able to deal with long entrenched emotional pain as an older person Mm. it's the the metaphor in days of future past which i hadn't really figured before with charles it's a metaphor for being a psychologist for being a therapist someone who actually helps other people because what charles is afraid of young charles is letting everybody else in what charles is afraid of most of all ultimately, is not everyone else's pain, it's his. You still believe? Just
1: because someone stumbles, loses their way, it doesn't mean they're lost forever. Sometimes we all need a little help.
0: So ultimately what Cornelius is most afraid of is uh, uh, remaining rootless forever, not having a family, and uh, being reassured by uh, himself that you yeah, know things are going to be all right. I mean, if, frankly, if everyone on the planet had that, whether it was an actual accurate or not reading, whether people were going to die in a bus crash tomorrow, but were reassured by their older selves, no, everything's going to be okay, even if that was a beautiful lie, I think suddenly the world would completely change. Which, as I, I suppose, is kind of a, it's a, like, the, the whole bright future is a, just a, um, a metaphor for that. The idea of, you know, being shown. Things aren't going to be as doom and gloom as they seem right now. Things are going to brighten up. We're going to have cornucopia technology, and there'll be food fights as far as the eye can see. I might even deliver pizzas to Venus. The actual ending of this, once he gets back in 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 time and uh, and is then adopted, like I say, they play it really warm and 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 relatively subdued and subtle, but uh, in a respectful way to, to to what's happened in the past, with evoking in, in, Walt at this point and kind of tapping in on on Walt's love of Epcot and Tomorrowland and and love of the future in a way that very few of the previous films had ever really done. Yeah. So this at least brings that to the Disney canon.
4: That is true. So something that I I don't know a lot of the details here because it gets really hard to find behind the scenes details about Disney at this point, but mm. so Lasseter was put in charge of Disney during this film's production and even though he didn't have a hand in it from the ground up, he did heavily I don't know if he hands on heavily ingested it himself, but he gave a lot of notes that resulted in like 60% of the film as it was being scrapped and changed and more Mm. stuff being added, uh, of the things that were added, the, I don't think the hat was in the original version of the film. So it was just goob. I don't think the whole sort of, uh, I think the note that Lasseter gave was that there was nothing threatening or scary in the film at all. There was, it didn't feel like there were stakes, I guess. Uh, so the hat was added, the, dinosaur threat thing was added in but the ending was changed i don't know what the original ending was but i am the current ending is great and a great way for the movie to end i wonder what it was before
0: yeah i'll have to ask john that when next (laughs) we (laughs) meet oh i'd love that so much um actually mentioning the the uh, t-rex there aren't many films with dinosaurs in them that do them well the 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 fact that the t-rex ends up absurdly pointing out um over the radio to goob uh, while he's been trying unsuccessfully (laughs) to attack as an animal as a t-rex um uh lewis (laughs) Lewis. (laughs) why do i keep thinking will lewis
5: called wilbur
0: yes i know danger wilbur robinson after he's been trying to attack uh lewis uh, it calls back to something that the frog said slightly earlier, which is um, that his oh, oh, bollocks. I can't. How do you explain a joke like this? It's the, it's the sight of a T-Rex going, I'm oh, pulling little arms, master. It's <laughs> it any is kind fi- of funny. Any film which acknowledges how silly the T-Rex actually looks in a practical situation is, uh, you know, just gets an extra star from me.
4: Yeah, having a goofy little T-Rex say over your hat communication, it doesn't seem like this plan was very well thought through. It's (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty funny.
0: Yes, it does have its charms, and uh, you know the fact that it's around about the time that everyone's throwing food at each other kind of uh, you know just sort of softens that um, unending blow of meatballs. (laughs) Yeah,
4: this movie really does get by on the glimmer of a heart that kind of beats underneath all the zaniness like that that theme of not getting stuck in past regrets or losses and just pressing forward toward a better future is great. And I can't think of a more appropriate message for Disney animation itself at this point in time.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: It, it's kind of a shame yeah. this film isn't remembered more. Yeah. I mean, it was a flop more or less. Yep. I mean, it made 170 million, which is not great.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it, it sounds like it was, um, not received, uh, well, it, <laughs> Well, let's see what the actual uh, critical reception is. It's, it's got 66% on RT. Real movie news stated that it has a snappy plot that demands close attention as it whizzes back and forth in the space-time continuum and touching on serious ideas and proposing some rather disturbing alternate realities, What where the buildings are all covered in hats. And the witty story twists are handled with rare subtlety and intelligence. In the end, it may get a little weepy and inspirational, but it's so charming that we don't mind at all. What are you talking about? It may get a little weepy and inspirational. That's the good stuff. Danny Minton of the Beaumont Journal said that the Robinsons might not be the family you want to hang out with. That's for damn sure. But they sure (laughs) were fun to meet in this imaginative and beautiful 3D experience. You never get anything done. Everything's too random. Andrew L. Urban of Australian Urban Cinephile said Walt Disney stood for fantasy on screen. This is a loving tribute to his legacy. Kyle Smith the New York Post named it to be the tenth best film of 2007. Conversely, O. Scott of the New York Times wrote, "Meet the Robinsons is surely one of the worst theatrically released animated features issued under the Disney label in quite some time." He didn't see Chicken Little. I was just Sh- <laughs> <mean> Chicken Little. <laughs> While Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly gave the film a C and said, "This is a bumpy ride." So yeah, it uh, fell behind Blades of Glory in the end, the uh, John Heder and Will Ferrell ice skating comedy.
4: I seem to remember at the time feeling like everything I saw in the marketing of it was advertising the everything you see in the middle half, basically, like it was just all that kind of random, crazy excitement and that did not interest me at all. It just looked the same as Chicken Little had to me. I didn't it wasn't until I actually watched the movie that I realized there was going to be this much heart on either side of that middle section.
0: Mm. Um, this, uh, the director Stephen J. Anderson was an animator on Rover Dangerfield the uh, Rodney Dangerfield is a dog film I didn't know that uh, <laughs> I, knew was, I knew he was a
4: storyboard artist during like Tarzan and yeah, Tarzan and Brother great. Bear and Love stuff like that it. and he co directs Winnie the Pooh later but, All right. Yeah, but I, I did not know that aspect of his history that's great
0: <laughs> started with Rodney
5: I think you're right
4: Over here? Ah, ah, there
1: he is. Kid, we'd like to get a story on you for the local paper. You've got a bright future ahead of you.
2: Let it go. Yeah. Let it roll right off your shoulder, don't you know? The hardest part is over. Let it in. Let your clarity. Let it slide.
4: can't decide if pressed like if i had to choose one if i'd prefer to watch chicken little or the black cauldron again oh that's that's a hard choice right
5: really i black cauldron in a heartbeat (laughs) i just don't make me watch chicken little again
4: (laughs) i can't decide, like if feeling nothing or feeling angry is worse Mm. like black cauldron i just kind of like kind of perplexed by the entire way through and it feels very long yeah Yeah, black cauldron you just kind of watch and you're like what are you doing man but Mm. chicken little you're just you can get mad
5: (laughs) yeah yeah i i don't think for me i i would prefer not to be mad (laughs) but yeah life's
4: short either way you could find something better to do
5: black cauldron is quite a long film for to sit and feel nothing that's true um there's only a handful of films that I, I really, you know, would swap fingernails for having to watch again.
4: Yeah, um, what was that?
5: And I, I don't think either of those qualify.
4: We were trying to decide which is worth having to watch: Chicken Little or The Black Cauldron again.
0: Oh. Black well, yes. Cauldron's kind of like, oh, this went wrong. Yeah, I can see where people look like <laughs> this. Uh, oh, this is kind of sweet and nah, kind of like that. Oh, this is a bad idea. No, 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 no. This is a bit <laughs> yes. boring. But Chicken Little is like, oh, kill me now. You, you knew so much better at this point. You knew so much better and you let this happen. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but Dan reckons that the anger that is evoked by Chicken Little is at least vaguely sustaining, whereas Black Cauldron, he just feels nothing
4: yeah black cauldron is black cauldron feels long like i've just i i don't know how long it's been and i don't know how long it'll take to end but this i'm just still stuck watching this and i'm mystified whereas chicken little i can at least let in a sith lord way let the hate sustain me through no. it it's like, <laughs> and let it propel me to the end
0: so you watch I'm, it out of spite
4: I, I mean if i gotta watch either one of them
0: it's a bad choice either way well, they're never going to make, uh, to date, Black Cauldron's never come out on Blu-ray. So even if I was trying to get all, because I'm now at a point where I can get, I'm like 10 shy of having everything on Blu-ray, just in a neat little line. Yeah. But it's like, I don't want to get Chicken Little, screw this, don't that want it. Harsh. Yeah. And if I get them all because I've got to get all the numbers, I've got to get The Wild. And, like, mm-hmm. I can't – like, they've never released Rescuers Down Under on its own. I can only buy it in a double pack with the Rescuers. And then where uh, does yeah. that go? You know? <laughs> I've, yeah. I have only own That's the annoying. American version, so I'd have to buy it again as a double pack and buy the British version of just the Rescuers so that I've got two places to put them. And I guarantee the numbers won't match up. Uh, no respect for the shelf. Yeah, they don't care. That's why they – You know, But, uh – but yeah, no, I, I'm not buying Chicken Little. No. I, don't I, 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 I am confident I will never watch that film again. You know, you know, you're like, goodbye Chicken Little, I will never watch you again. <laughs> I will, I'll keep it just so I can say I've got it and I don't need to ever get it again. But that's, that's the extent of it. Okay. Yeah. And now on to better things. Indeed. So Bolt.
2: You're unbelievable.
0: 15, take one. Volt is the greatest superhero on television.
1: Action. And he thinks all his powers are real. Ready on the bars.
2: I want to take Bolt home this weekend.
4: Let's do this. Let's put a pin in it. Boop! Pin in.
1: I have a little girl at home. Love of my life. I would do anything for her. And I would trade her for you in a heartbeat. I'm coming, Penny!
2: Whoa, 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 whoa! Don't let him out! He's never been off this set before! <laughs> You're part of a TV show. Nothing you think is real is real! (sighs)
1: Nah, not likely.
2: Okay, if you got superpowers, what's your best power? Can you fly?
1: That information's classified.
2: (laughs) Now I'm concerned on a number of levels. You're both the super dog! Who are you? I'm Rhino. Rhino? The hamster. Well, you know, my
1: ancestry is 116th wolf with a little wolverine in there. Walt Disney Pictures presents. Ring, ring. Who is it? Destiny? I've been expecting your call. John Travolta. There's a guard. I'll snap his neck. He can lick my bunghole, motherfucker. Miley Cyrus.
2: Bolt, let's go. <laughs> Nice move.
1: In the comedy event of the holiday season. <gasps> There's no truck that I know that can keep him bolted, Rhino. Yoink! Walt Disney Pictures, Bolt. <gasps> 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 This'll be just like the time you infiltrated Calico's Arctic cover base! It's not gonna be exactly like that, Rhino. We're gonna have to do things a little differently. Health mode. <laughs> 2G,
0: now playing. Made in 2008, cost 150 million dollars, and it made 310 million dollars. So, um,
5: there's that kid audience again.
0: Yeah, about the same audience went to see this as went to see Chicken Little. I do, like, there's no way of telling, but sometimes when two films of the kind of similar make about the same um, money, you, you kind of have to wonder, is it just literally the same people coming to see the same film because they know what they're going to get?
5: Yes. That's exactly what it is. It is <laughs> obviously 310 to 315 millions worth of people that yep. will go and see it regardless.
0: You must have to put a, get a certain marketing clout to get to those people, though. Anyway, so TV dog believes he has superpowers, finds himself lost in the real world and gets a rude awakening, befriends a stray cat and a hamster, returns to his owner who would rather just be a normal girl and kindly takes in his new friends too. The end. Okay, so next week we're going to be doing uh, Princess in the Frog. <laughs> I'm kidding. Because <laughs> uh, Sharon liked this and I think Dan probably quite liked this as well for various reasons. So, uh, But now you guys all know the – like considering how long I had to explain Meet the Robinsons <laughs> – Bolt is, a Bolt breath is nice and straightforward. It's very forward. simple and straightforward yes. in, in comparison uh, as a film. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so um, go for it, Dan. You've got some background on this? I do, and
4: most of it relates to uh, American Dog, actually. Mm-hmm. So, because Oh, you mean the TV f- show? Uh, no. Oh, wait, that's wait. Family
0: Dog. Sorry. What's American yeah, yeah. Dog?
4: Uh, well, no one knows. So... <laughs> This is the first feature that Lasseter was around to help guide from the early stages, and I feel pretty certain that there is a messy story behind this movie that we still don't know much about. Right. Because Bolt began life as a film being directed by Chris Sanders of Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon fame. Oh. And it was to be the story of a dog who was a TV star and believes himself to still be on TV who finds himself stranded in the desert with a one-eyed cat and a radioactive oversized rabbit. And the rest of the movie was going to be more or less I think about their road trip adventure getting the dog home. So
0: was overactive oversized Radioactive Rabbit going to be voiced by Chris Sanders himself, he of Toothless and uh, Stitch fame, As and he's very good at vocalizing frightening creatures in an endearing way.
4: I would have been a hundred percent on board if he did, because because <laughs> I agree, I love it when he does voices Didn't, for his characters. He
0: also voiced the uh, the toddler, uh, the, sorry, the the baby thing in uh, the croods Have you seen the Crudes yet? I still need to see The Croods. I keep putting it off. Dan, I am buying you The Croods. <laughs> Aggressively. It's totally worth it's, it. It's, it's uh, probably on
4: Netflix. I should, I should go look it yeah, up and actually fix it.
0: Uh, but yeah, he also voices the, the feral baby in that. So that's, that's Chris Sanders' thing. Directing incredibly, um, incredibly good animated films and uh, voicing the most savage thing in them.
5: Is he mm-hmm. the safety welker?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, because he only goes Rawr, Rawr, for all of like all of these uh, creatures. So he can only do that one voice. It's great though. Now, okay, everything... sorry, but,
4: Dan. Uh, no, no, it's okay. Now, everything about the actual goings-on behind the scenes is shrouded in mystery. But hmm. from what I can tell, when Lassiter assumed control of Disney Animation, he looked at the film in progress. He and a bunch of others. He wasn't feeling it for whatever reason, and suggested changes. And I don't know what those changes he suggested were. I don't know if he and Sanders butted heads. I have heard that Lassiter is not a big fan of Lilo and Stitch either. So this might just be a case of clashing creative sensibilities.
0: I don't know. but That's madness. What, Who is not I, a fan I, of Lilo and Stitch?
4: I agree. I agree. But uh, I, I will grant him that Chris Sanders makes weird movies, but I think in a lovable, wonderful way. And yeah. I, it looked like American Dog was going to be another weird movie other people i have spoken to since who did see early screenings of it and what the plan for it was all the consensus was it was weird (laughs) and they weren't sure (laughs) that it was going to and like the drawing if you look at the art for it like there's some sketches of the characters all in 2d of course those characters look great and they're really cool looking designs i don't know if they would have translated to 3d well but uh but I don't know, it probably would have been a weird film. But whatever the case, whatever happened, Sanders apparently resisted the pressure to make changes and was eventually pulled off the project, which is something that has happened many times at Pixar. But, and, and it sometimes results in great films. Ratatouille definitely had that sort of thing happen. Brave, for what problems it had, did have a director change up. It's happened several times at Pixar, but it's never a easy thing to go through. It is always somewhat messy and dramatic it's it is more often than not a the sweatshop or the sweatbox story mm. in in most any case even when it has a happy ending and this would eventually lead to sanders just leaving disney and moving to dreamworks and so bolt the film we now have is pretty much a do-over of the original core sanders idea and you guys might have noticed this as well but ever since around tarzan the the behind-the-scenes features on Disney films have been getting very bare-bones and heavily sanitized. Yes. There's very little information of substance, and what little they do show feels extremely staged and cleaned up and exclusively positive, and it's really starting to bother me. Sort of like,
0: all's well at the House of Mouse?
4: Carry on. Yeah, even if you watch the one featurette that I think I could find on this disc, it is the directors, the new directors. There's never any mention of Chris Sanders or American Dog or any of that other stuff. Uh-huh. The new directors talking about the production of it, mostly all in positives, very quickly glossing over the crunch required to get this thing out the door. And then talking about the fun, goofy things that the animation team did to let off steam yeah. and only in a positive sense. Yeah. And it's. Look, I completely understand why Disney would not be interested in pulling all of the skeletons out of the closet and throwing them on every DVD they release. And I don't, I mean, they don't have to remake the sweat box for every movie. That's fine. But there are a lot of human stories behind the creation of these movies that we can't know right now and probably won't for many years until people start making books and documentaries about it. Mm. And it. It really sucks that we got to wait decades to learn these stories because, like, imagine a world in which we never learned the full story of Howard Ashman's contributions to the Renaissance. Yeah. Or, like, a world where Disney actually had managed to keep a lid on the sweat box. That, like, those, I understand why Disney doesn't want everyone seeing that stuff because, like, they've got an image that they try to maintain, but. And it is hard to get
0: hold of, so they've put most of a lid on, but there's a little tiny crack in it that it can escape. Absolutely. But but if this stuff is accounted for years afterwards, you don't get that rawness, you don't get that sense of immediacy of, like, this is happening right now, or this only just happened. It's like, oh, yes, if I remember, there was uh, some contention between, I don't know who it was, it was uh, Sanders and someone, maybe Lasseter, and then it becomes vague and the details begin to dissipate and disappear.
4: Yeah like you remember you probably saw it that um there was that uh, about a year or two ago somebody found a comic story thing that Sanders had written that was sort of a parable story of oh yeah a bear a a bear who has an airplane company and he wants to make planes and he and but the whole process of making planes that was just very very clearly an allegory for Disney feature animation stuff. It just blatantly, it wasn't even, it wasn't even hidden. And that sort of thing only came out, like he wrote that, I think around the time of Mulan, that only just surfaced like last year. And like, again, I understand why Disney wouldn't want that sort of thing to surface. I think it just got found in like folded up inside the copy of some book that somebody found. But uh, still, it feels like there is such a, the actual history of these films being made feels lost or intentionally obscured mm. and that's, to a dangerous degree.
5: Yeah, that intentional obscuring is something that I think a lot of people have got it into their heads these days that because you can put anything on the internet, that if there's something of note, it will surface. It will find its way out there and people will circulate it. Actually, if you know how to handle media... The way an organization like Disney knows how to handle media, all you've got to do is flood the market with all kinds of other information that you don't mind being out there. Even, you know, throw in a, a few little slightly under the radar, slightly off kilter stories just to make people think, yeah, that's the way it all plays out. I don't think for one second all of the marketing stuff about what goes on when they make Marvel movies, um, all of the the uh, the interviews that they do and all that kind of thing there's stuff going on there that, that isn't going to see the light of day for a long time.
4: Absolutely. A guideline you can usually follow in this environment where we aren't given much information. If there is a shakeup, if you hear any any word of a shakeup mid-production, whether there was a directorial change or a a large chunk of a movie getting scrapped or changed or something like that, just assume the sweatbox happened. Mm. Because more often than not, that is exactly what it looked and felt like to those on the inside even if the movie turned out great. Like, Toy Story 2 turned out great, but it had a... I mean, Toy Story 1 had a rough patch in the middle that we know about now, thanks to documentaries and stuff. Toy mm-hmm. Story 2 definitely did as well. Ratatouille did as well. I think lots of these movies...
0: Lion King, as events. far as I recall. just certainly yeah. wasn't smooth sailing for Lion King.
4: Like, all of these... Things, making these movies is hard, and there's always stuff that goes wrong. There's always... There are always trials throughout it. And it doesn't always end up happy, but knowing that a film did go through a lot to be great and a thing that we all love makes it all the more special Mm -hmm. and I know those stories exist for these films that have come out since Tarzan and I Mm -hmm. wish we could learn them Mm
0: -hmm. also like for films that um, they they go through that, that change and what comes out the other side is fantastic that's totally worth hearing about. Mm-hmm. It's also perversely worth hearing about films that could have been quite challenging, it could have ended up being maybe even bad, but like definitely noteworthy in the Disney uh, uh, series versus what actually came out here, which is that Bolt is a fairly unexceptional animal comedy. It, it's yeah. got some nice bits in it, but it doesn't ever, like, no one goes, Oh, you know, Bolt, Bolt, oh, that changed my life. Or you know, the, the Bolt inspired me to animate. Does anyone ever say that to you? I've not heard
4: it, but yeah. I mean, I have. I do know some people who have looked at specific aspects of animation and Bolt because I, I think this is the best looking three D Disney movie so far.
0: I think it's safe to say that. Well, these there three, never- and Dinosaur, and The Wild, yes, definitely.
4: Yeah, it's like I've I know some uh, guys who have looked at the pigeon characters in this as reference for something they want to do because those pigeons are animated really well and it's in entertaining ways. But I don't know of anybody for whom this is their, the lion King or Cinderella or whatever movie they saw growing up that made them want to do this. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they're still growing up. I don't know. I'll meet them someday. (laughs)
5: Lyra really likes it.
0: Yeah. Lyra liked it. Yeah.
5: Like to an asking to watch it again on several occasions degree.
0: There are lots of
4: parts of it I actually do like. Mm. I think I feel kind of not even a bit better than lukewarm on it overall because these three films we're covering in this section, the Chicken Little, Meet the Robinsons, and Bolt, I had not watched when they came out just as a sort of form of protest and also just because I didn't hear many great things about them. Some people told me that Bolt was pretty good, but I just assumed that this was yeah. the just the low point that we had to go through so I could watch The Princess and the Frog when that came along. But... uh. Watching it now, I actually like a lot of it.
0: Yeah. I'd say Bolt is more consistent the whole way through tonally than, uh, and more steady. It seems to have a very steady hand uh, relative to uh, Meet the Robinsons, where there's a, a lunatic or a monkey at the wheel. Um, but yes. the Meet the Robinsons has those spikes of emotional um, impact for me, which this never reaches, although I believe Sharon preferred it. I did, yes. Uh, can you explain why, Sharon?
5: Um... It, uh... Mainly for me, right, I wasn't expecting to get anything out of this. I've never seen it before. Um, I I didn't know the plot or I knew it involved a dog. Um, That was it. That was the extent to which I knew about it. Mm -hmm. And the introduction part where it launches in, you you get the the little prologue where um, Penny... uh, picks up Bolt from the animal rescue place and decides that's it, that's her dog. And then it cuts to um, the kidnapping of the dad and the action scene where she launches off on the scooter and Bolt's pulling her around. And um, and he's just, you know, doing his crazy, incredible cyborg dog thing. And all of a sudden, because I was kind of – and I said to you, it's done – a similar thing to what Chicken Little did, in that it launches straight into the action without much in the way of preliminaries, mm-hmm. um, but it does it in a way that it, it, it uses visual language immediately, in a way that Chicken Little never did. It's uh, it's telling you the story of Bolt and Penny and their relationship. Uh, by virtue of what's happening, by the the, the fact that uh, he is so totally devoted to saving her life, that she, can, she trusts him totally to get her out of this situation, that she is bold and determined. You can see it on her face as she holds onto the scooter and they race down the intersection. Um, and I started thinking that having this central duo of the girl and her dog is actually a really good way of representing um, a young developing animus in a young girl, right? Because the, a dog has uh, the, the qualities of a straightforward, non-messed up uh, animus in a, a young Girl's psyche. He is, he lacks complication. He is, he, you know, he, he does as he's instructed. Penny has some very simple commands that she gives to him, and every single one of them he follows to the letter and he he does what he's asked to do. He protects her, he's loyal. Um, and then when you told me that it was um, Miley Cyrus doing her voice, um, it, it kind of made me suddenly jump to this sort of meta level that the you you can take that underlying story that this, this girl's young underdeveloped animus is being tricked into thinking that everything around her is real so that the people that are, are basically using her to make money can turn her into an industry. And I thought, my God, this is actually, this is, this is really engaging me. This is, this has got me solidly into this idea. I'm, Fascinated to see where this is going to go. Um, And then Bolt started talking.
0: (laughs) And I went... went, Is that your bloody Travolta?"
5: But in my head, I was going, ah, oh, I see. It's just to be one of those
0: movies
5: (laughs) where it's it's a talking dog and he's going to go off and do talking dog things.
0: And he'll probably meet a cat.
5: Yep. The, The curious cat and the courageous dog... And, the, and blah, blah, blah. I was
0: and, watching for Tyler's contribution to the film.
5: Yes, indeed. Uh, but then when I realised it, um, it was John Travolta, and then I started thinking, ah, now, hang on a minute. John Travolta is being tricked into thinking everything around him is real so that he can make money for his Scientology overlords. It's, it's, still, it's still there. It's still there. Um, and, I, and then I kind of lost heart with it a little bit, but then it does build that back up over the course of the story. Um, and the, the the core element, and it's like I said about Chicken Little does not appear to have a core. Meet the Robinsons has a core. They had to slap a load of Skittles Effect slapstick in the middle to hold it up for some reason. Um, but it does have a, a heartfelt core. And Bolt, I felt that that heartfelt element to it, Um, went all the way through. There were lots of gags that annoyed me and action sequences that that disengaged me. But by and large, that idea of, you know, this... uh, um, Bolt having this belief that he is a hero... um, and the ups and downs of, of the people around him either trying to uh, mislead him on that, convince him on that, dis, uh, you know, disabuse him of those notions, if that seems like the most appropriate thing to do, and it ultimately being about how he responds to those things and what behaviour it elicits from him. I was really engaged with that, and I, I actually thought that the... Uh, the the animation sold it for me. The fact that you're absolutely right, down about the quality, and I could see the direct line between this and Zootopia.
4: Yeah, and I actually can, too, now the change, that you mention
5: it. That was kind of what made me feel, ah, yeah, this is definitely Disney. This now feels like Disney. Okay, it might be a little bit flashbang and a little bit silly at times, but this feels like Disney is back, and they've stopped trying to um, hang on other animation studios, coattails, and do what everybody else is doing. Ultimately, that that thing about the confidence to believe that you are the hero and you lead the way, Disney was a market leader. They were the market in this for decades. And it had, and it had kind of got to the point where they were desperately trying to do what everybody else was doing. Disney should not be aping other studios. Disney should be the studio that other people ate. Agreed. And yeah. this kind of made me feel like at the bottom line, they've got that back. At least they're on the way to getting that back. And I think that, that segment at the beginning, um, where they're talk where they've got the studio the network executive there, and she's talking about um, you know, you, you're losing the demographic eighteen to thirty-five. And it's pretty apparent that they're they're rather scathing of that attitude. And that's absolutely right. Eighteen to thirty-five That's not Disney's market, not for these movies. Right, now you have acquired Marvel and Star Wars. You've got those people sewn up. Yeah. Don't worry about
0: eighteen Yeah, younger than 18, really much younger than 15, that's your core audience. Mm. And then over 35, that's when they're going to have kids old enough to appreciate Disney. Yeah. So yeah Disney did absolutely did the right thing with uh, acquiring um, Marvel and Star Wars now they can cater to pretty much everyone. Next you know the next um, demographic they have to get is pets and the dead. <laughs> 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 but they otherwise oh, they pretty much got everyone. Um
4: yeah. yeah. Tim Burton in to try for a while. Yeah. <laughs>
3: nice.
0: If they cancelled all their Johnny Depp um, projects, they would actually have a large amount of extra money to play with.
1: Is this some apparition I
2: see before me? Or could it be my hero? Oh, my gosh! Oh, my gosh! Oh, my gosh! (laughs) You're both the super dog!
1: You're fully awesome! Wait a minute. You know this dog? Oh, I do. He is
2: fully awesome. Awesome! Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've established that. Who are you? I'm Rhino. Rhino? The hamster.
1: Well, you know, my ancestry isn't all hamster. I'm 116th wolf with a you know, little wolverine in there somewhere, but that's besides the point. We have before us a legend, Bolt the Super Dog. He can outrun speeding missiles and, and, and burn through solid metal with his heat vision. Oh, oh, and best of
2: all, he can obliterate large structures with his super bark. Wait a minute. You've seen the super bark.
1: Have you been observing me oh yeah i watch you all the time that's incredible oh it's nothing really but i'm always so vigilant no one can evade my detection you're a phantom uh he can lick my bunghole mother
0: can I? A couple of things on the beginning of the film Um, We get this lengthy parody, because I I thought that it was a dog who was in movies when I first started watching it. And it's it's interesting when you say, like, now it looks like Disney. I think it didn't look like Disney at the time, but now that Disney has continued along a certain line, you go back to it, and it's like the beginnings of that now. So Mm. it didn't look like Disney before, but now it looks like the beginnings of Disney now.
5: Yeah, but I've Uh, not seen it before, so I can only see it in retrospect.
0: Okay, um, but the actual the TV the, it's a TV show, so it, and it involves a two hundred mile an hour freeway chase on motorbikes and a, and a, a scooter powered by a dog running at lightning speed and you know leaping off the scooter and chucking landmines around the place and. And then like barking and like everything flying backwards. And I looked up the 10 most expensive TV shows of all time, which this would be on. I wasn't looking for this. I was looking for anything which even might remotely compare to this. And it's all things like ER and Game of Thrones, uh, Deadwood. You know, Deadwood costs 4.5 million per episode because they were maintaining a, a real life wild west town. But not one of these involves freeway chases. Like, you know, really intense leaping on and off and motorbikes and stuff. That stuff does happen, but it never looks like a Michael Bay film, which is exactly what this looked like. So to begin with, they are asking an audience of children to believe that this is how they make TV. And so it's like a, a, a lie within a lie that Bolt believes this is real. And, you know, that, that these these cars that were being chucked all over the place were all... like The, the whole premise of this film rests on the fact that the director... Played by, um, who was it? It was... Uh, it was James Woods, wasn't it? it was, no, it felt like James Woods. It's actually James Lipton. Oh. The guy who asked all those questions of the celebrities. Oh, man. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. The whole contingent of this film is that the dog really does believe in Penny and wants to save her. How did what we just saw happen... Because that, that is, yeah, like that is
4: the big stretch. They need to get to a place where, okay, for this whole story to work, the dog has to believe that everything that is happening in a TV show is real. In hmm. real life, all of us know there is no possible way to make that error. Like, outside the camera view, everything looks like a TV set. Nothing look like, nothing's convincing in that way. And they have a very hard job of trying to set up a scenario where you could almost kind of believe a dog might think that this is all really happening if you don't think about it for even a second.
0: They could often say the 60s or the 70s. If it was say the Green Hornet and they led the dog from a trailer to a room where Penny was tied up and then he fought the men inside then they took the dog back to another trailer. Maybe under those circumstances but i mean it's it's a huge thing for us to believe and they never make any real concessions for for how cleverly they actually make it seem that the dog really is believing that they never explain how he's able to pull her along on his uh, you know on her scooter like the and it seems like i'm like saying oh well stop complaining just accept that it's all real but that's the point bolt accepts that it's all real i'm not bolt I'm the discerning adult in the audience. I need answers. I think- and even as a child, I'd have been going, well, hang on a second. James Lipton is now watching what we just saw, and it's already been edited together. It's already gone through color processing and sound mixing and sound effects and all of the, just all of the things that children don't understand need to be done for a TV show or a film. And they go, oh, there's a boom mic in there. Well, it doesn't matter. Digitally edit it out. <laughs> right. they they fall at the first hurdle for me in that they the the ludicrousness of what we are expected to believe means that we I, I have no traction for really investing in like the fact that this story is is is, is hinged upon this and it's like we must like the all oh, the ratings are going down and people you know, are, 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 are bored apparently by what looks like michael bay level stuff on their tv which doesn't cost them anything if it was this would be the most viewed film of all like tv show of all time especially if you knew that the dog thought it was real. That would be like this weird dog experiment to watch every week. It it (laughs) kind of has an edge of the Truman Show about it. But they never really explore that.
5: The the edge of ludicrousness for me in that is that there is a director who is deluded enough to think that it is necessary (laughs) to go to these lengths to convince a dog. Here's how it works, though. The dog believes the threat... The dog doesn't need to believe that he can hold a car in his jaws.
0: The dog doesn't need... <laughs> How did they do you that? Don't... There was actually a guy dangling in there. You... I can understand if it was a very light car, but there's a guy in there.
5: Right. You don't need to worry about the boom mic. Do you know why? The dog doesn't know what a boom mic is. You have <laughs> <Yeah>. some context <laughs> for boom mic. dog's that
2: it it out earlier. Yeah, like, indeed. What, they're,
5: they're crediting the dog with way more intelligence. At this point, than the dog actually transpires to have. It's Even ludicrous. once we know he can talk.
0: As an afterthought, and I know I should have thought of this on the day, but it's ethically questionable to have a dog believe it's real the whole time. Remember all that fuss that everyone made when a dog's purpose was in the development stage and an Alsatian dog had to jump into a carefully organised stunt? River and the Alsatian dog wasn't too happy about it. That Alsatian believed it was too real. If you throw all the ethics out the window for the actual producers of this show, they would still have to deal with anti-animal cruelty groups who would have quite a few legs to stand on. I do love the idea of a method director, though, as a (laughs) phrased character.
5: Yes. Nobody would work with him, ever.
0: Oh. Mm. No, he'd have been fired for being super difficult with the uh, studios. They wouldn't have got to this phase where, um, you know, the execs are giving him lip. One good thing, though, after you get past that madness, which, by the way, is the most interesting part of the movie because it's so contentious and it's so, like, full of questions that I was really engaged with it because I was, like, counting the things that hang on, hang on. And it gets into the sort of the more bland. It's just the incredible journey, by the way, folks. It, that that's all it is. It's the incredible journey with the Buzz Lightyear, I'm actually a space ranger, no you're not, thing bolted onto it. Eh? <laughs> Once it gets to that, I, I noticed that there were a lot of different body shapes in this film. There were various different ethnicities, which they don't normally do. And in fact, it made me think, hang on, looking back on it, Disney haven't gone for, you know, manifestly Indian characters in their films since then. Why not? It's a really good idea because it – and they point out repeatedly that these people who are sort of support cast in this film are doing jobs and are being people in a way that Chicken Little never even entertained for a second because they're just stupid cartoon dogs.
3: Mm.
0: So that was a bonus point. Um, the the meta commentary on the fact that um, – like, which obviously only took on massive meta – meaning once of Miley Cyrus and how messed up her life became as a result of Mickey mouse himself. Just the, the fact that that is then something you can go back and look at and just see her like pet Penny, the little girl in this eventually escapes from the claws of uh, showbiz and goes off and some other child gets drafted in her place. And, um, you know, she just wants to be a, a regular kid. And, It kind of feels like if you'd maybe taken Miley away at a certain time because, you know, and I'm not going to really get myself all tied up in the whole she doesn't seem happy. She seems like she's, you know, gone through at least one breakdown already on stage. But it is beyond a doubt that taking young girls of of, of, of their most impressionable age, turning them into megastars and then controlling every movement throughout their teenage years is not going to result in them being totally hunky-dory. I came in like a
3: wrecking ball
2: I never hit so hard in love All I wanted was to break your walls All you ever did was Wreck me Yeah, you
3: You wreck
4: me uh, I, I think that overall if the thematic core stuff that Sharon was talking about earlier if they had managed to carry that all the way through consistently, because I I think they stumble and it kind of gets lost here and there in various places that there are various parts of the movie where I start kind of losing track, maybe what the whole movie is about, because I think it's kind of about a few scattered different things and not any one of them singularly the way that meet the Robinsons was. I think I would actually love this movie Mm -hmm. as it is. I think I end up feeling like I'd still actually like it in a lot of surface ways, like chicken little. I don't like in any surface ways (laughs) meet the Robinson. I like kind of despite its surface. This one I actually enjoy the surface a lot more. I, I like Bolt, Mittens, and Rhino as characters. I the local stereotype pigeons are really entertaining.
3: Mm.
4: Uh, Mittens being a cr- pigeon crime boss in Manhattan is kind of funny. Mm. Uh, that learning to beg sequence of Bolt is pretty entertaining as well. And that travel montage is actually really beautiful looking. Mm. Uh, for the second uh, about two thirds through the movie. But um, I do feel like there is something confused in the core that, if that were firing on all cylinders, would actually make this a pretty great movie. Yeah, I, I want this to be the film that uh, Sharon kind of described seeing in bits in, in bits and pieces in that in those opening sequence.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Rhino and um, Mittens, the, uh, the the cat and the hamster that he meets. Are deceptively generic when you first get you know meet them but that they have they have little things to them which kind of you know flesh them out uh, you know Rhino has a, a very a core of wanting to do the right thing and he's you know he, he's super intense about everything which obviously is he's, you know gonna uh, amuse the kids and he has an energy to him he kind of reminds me of Olaf but without the uh, whimsy
3: mm.
0: if that makes yeah. sense yeah um, you know he's you know fiercely determined and and that's amusing because he's a hamster um but uh the the wise cracking cat you know who's also they could probably have pushed that relationship a bit more like have her and bolt argue more and eventually um ch- just to have her push too far the when she tells him about abandonment because and that she specifically uses the word declawed, I don't think I, – I didn't pick up on the fact that they mentioned that before. Um, did they? Did they ever mention the declawing? It's,
5: it's the first – basically, she's – in the int- uh, the first time you see her, yeah. she's talking about her claws. Yeah. She never pops them out.
0: Mm-hmm. She uses them as a yeah. threat. Right.
5: Um, but she never pops them out. Okay. And then that's the first time that she says that she's been declawed.
0: That was actually uh, um, a piece of uh, characterization for Kitty soft paws in um, – uh, Puss in Boots as well, Sam Hayek's cat character. Mm. Uh, in both scenarios, it's treated as something that should not be done to a cat, especially not a uh, anthropomorphized cat, in terms of the fact that it, it it takes away their sense of defense, their sense of self-reliance. Mm. And if they're going to end up as a strain in the case of Mittens, which is an incredibly appropriate name when you think about it, it diminishes her ability to survive. Mm. Bolt's immediate reaction to, to, to this, uh, her opening up and saying, I was abandoned, is to abandon her. And Bolt never apologizes for that. Does he? Does he ever say, I am so sorry?
5: no because it's it's treated because it's all
0: about him
5: yeah exactly basically she she goes through that story and she tells him what's happened and and she's yes all right it's in the context of she's trying to convince him that penny is not real and penny doesn't really love him so that he will face reality and deal with reality but ultimately she's telling him all of this stuff for the first time Mm. probably the first time she's told anybody yeah and she gets to the end of the story and his first line is, yeah, but Penny's not like that. It's, it's immediately, yeah, I understand your life is terrible, but let's talk about me for a moment. We've been talking about you the whole film, Bolt. Let's, let's give the cat a moment, shall we?
0: Yeah. It and just... then Rhino Brow beats her for abandoning her friend. <laughs> He's the one mm. that buggers off. So, yeah, I mean, it, it Bolt's a weird that's... combination of Woody and Buzz in that he's obsessed with his owner in the way that Woody is, um, and he's deluded in the way mm. that Buzz is.
5: But I think that's – Rhino's attitude is slightly different because he's acknowledging – he's basically saying Bolt is deluded. Mm. If we let him carry on being deluded, he's going to get hurt. He needs yeah. our help.
4: Yeah. It's interesting because I hadn't actually thought of the uh... – the bolt leaving mittens in that context before, and it, that's a. Uh, I'll have to think about that one for a while. At the time when I was watching it, it felt more of a case where, like, if bolt, but it felt more like mittens was the one departing, even though bolt was the one leaving the scene at that point, because yeah. the yeah. what the like the train, the metaphorical train they were on was a train back toward where bolt was, and then mittens was the one jumping ship at this point. Yeah, and. And Rhino just didn't realize that he would get that, uh, the train had left. But when you put it that way, actually, and I think that is a valid way to look at it. It is very, it does kind of ignore Mittens and what Mittens might have needed as a character at that point. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Mittens learns to trust again, (laughs) question mark yeah it's, it's so quick, like she's just their ancillary to Rhino by the end there it's mm-hmm. that That was a character that they failed to develop in a way that that makes other people want to fight for her happiness
5: yeah but that that was another element that kind of it did frustrate me a little bit that there was something going there that they dropped the ball on because um Bolt is basically this this privileged little ball of fluff who's had everything has, you know, he's been convinced that he's the hero. He's the central focus of everything. Everything he does is is capable and effective because people have been arranging things around him for things to work. And all of a sudden he realizes, oh, actually that's not the way the world works. And he falls to pieces. He completely goes apart. He's like, well, but I'm not magic. I'm not special. So how am I supposed to cope? And I love the fact that Rhino... His approach is, dude, I'm a hamster. I don't have any special skills. I'm going to carry on and do this anyway. Rhino's the hero to me in in that particular
0: context. Rhino's Sam.
5: But the fact that he then basically convinces bolt that mittens needs a hero you need to be a hero go save mittens you know what I would really like to have seen at that point mittens in the corner of that cage feeling really dejected and really down and then turning around and realizing hey actually I might not have claws but I can probably reach through those bars and unhook that bolt
0: You also uh, uh, said that Bolt himself was a metaphor for witch-white privilege. The idea that the entire, seemingly all of society keeps telling him he's awesome, but you take that society away and suddenly he has no skills.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I don't think that's what they intended, but Mm. also I like the fact that Rhino's fat.
0: Yeah. He's not a fat joke, he's a fat hero. Chicken
5: Little had the pig as a fat gag. Yeah. Uh, meet the Robinsons has Uncle Joe as a fat gag. Rhino is fat and heroic, and yeah. he gets up and, and does stuff because he's been inspired. And it's, they, they never make an issue of the fact that he's a big, fat, fluffy
0: ball. Yeah. Wreck-It Ralph just coming up round the corner. Pretty chunky himself. hmm Um, Also, yeah, here's just a little thing. But Disney managed five movies focusing on talking dogs. And that's just in the animated classics canon. Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians, Aristocats, Fox and the Hound, Oliver and Company. Never having to resort to the sniffing butts gag. Well, this is a DreamWorks clone, so butts. It's like the bone curtains again. There is a checklist of things that we know about dogs. I mean, I'm not going to go and see pets or that thing with the rabbit, are they the same film? The thing with Kevin Hart as a rabbit that's out this, yeah, year. I think that's the same movie. Same movie, yeah, uh, okay, right. Well, I'm not gonna go see that movie, but I'm gonna go ahead and assume that with each animal, they go, right, what are the five things kids know about these animals? Well, they sniff butts, they drink out of the toilet. Um, what else do dogs do? They're like bones.
5: The chase
0: cars. Yep. The chase cars. Every single obvious joke they can find. Yeah, and just, like, cram all of those in. And also, the, the, I know you mentioned that the pigeons are, are, are really well animated. You must have watched Animaniacs in the 90s.
4: I did. They, yeah. they are
0: entertaining, but, like, there is a... Uh, well, they, they are just way that... good feathers from Animaniacs, which wasn't <laughs> that funny a gag in the first place. Now, to their credit, this wasn't just a lazy goodfellas godfather joke crammed into pigeons making it literally the same gag no that would be the uh, gangster penguins in madagascar this is uh well have a listen
1: no way wow bolts i'm a really big fan of yours brother i'm blake this is my writing partner tom tom say what's up. what's up wow oh no oh And this is our personal assistant, Billy, who was supposed to wait up on the wire.
3: Bold, I've admired you for such a long time, and there's something I've always wanted to tell you if I ever got a chance to meet Uh, you, and now Okay, Billy,
1: that was horrifying. What you just did? Why don't you make yourself useful? Go get me some breadcrumbs, whole grain, go! Whole wheat is not the same thing as whole grain, Billy! Not the same, Billy! Do not come at me with whole wheat! Or pumpernickel, Billy! Okay, guys, but I really gotta get going. I know, I know you're a busy dog, but if you've got a second, we'd love to pitch you an idea for your show. Tom's better at pitching, I'll let him take it from here. Tommy's got the spotlight! Wait for it. Aliens. (laughs) Oh, snap. Aliens?
2: Audiences love aliens. Holler back! It'll be huge, man. Huge. You can't touch us! Uh, Oh, I I love it.
1: (gasps) But I'll tell you what. If you guys can help me find Penny, that girl from the television show, (gasps) well, I'd love to hear more about this aliens idea, but (gasps) on the way... We got a nibble! Don't freak out. This is how you blew it with Nemo. I,
4: I like that no matter, like, every locale they go to has pigeons, but they are all stereotypes of the people from that area. That, that itself is a, it's not a clever gag necessarily, but it is kind of funny in, in execution. You have sort of the New York Italian pigeons who do have sort of a that sort of mobster cliché way of talking with each other even though they're not necessarily actually they're not the mobsters they're the poor stoolies who are under the control of the cat mobster in town. Yeah. You've got the uh you've got the LA pigeons who are de- like desperately trying to get a script sold. Yeah. <laughs> you've got who are the last ones? They're like the Tennessee pigeons,
5: the the local don't... ones to the house yeah, the... who fly off at the end.
4: Yeah, yeah. And they use the physiology of a pigeon and the way a pigeon moves mm. to sell, like, in funny, entertaining ways to sell expressiveness of those characters in a very successful way, which mm. is... They, they get animal animation actually quite well in this film. Like, the yeah. Yeah.
0: The,
4: the human animation is still kind of like they're almost there, not quite. They're, it's getting closer. It's not detangled Tangled yet, that's for sure. But the... Animals, which are easier to do in a convincing way, uh, they're looking really great.
0: yeah, Bolt himself is a puppy. you just want to snuggle. he's wonderful. He also um, he, he's this, it pretty much the exact same dog and in the uh, uh, recent short feast on uh, oh, yeah. Big Hero six, same breed, so that yeah. every time Bolt was doing anything, I was just thinking like because I love that little dog in feast, so now suddenly yeah. that you know bolt was getting some residual love from that. There was, there was quite a lot of cynicism in the film as well, though. The, the, the whole, like, the cult of personality was sort of woven through it, and it was kind of like, oh, watch out, fame, and then executives come in, they meddle with everything, and you can't trust your agent. And, like, it, there was a lot of kind of, like, Hollywood in-jokes, which is like, well, this isn't, like, kids aren't going to be allowed to relate to this. And, frankly, neither are adults. You've kind of got to be in show business or have had an agent to really get that. Um, and they also have to be a shifty agent who's not looking out for your best uh, interests, I also, I kind of feel like Alan Tudyk should have played the agent, or just somebody with a bit more personality to make him funny, rather than just like skin crawling. Yeah, his yeah, name is Agent, by the way. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, there's, it, it's, it's a weird blend of a little bit too much cynicism for a Disney film. Like she, um, the Miley Cyrus character is almost this world weary. Oh, I've been chewed up and spit out by the system at age twelve already. <laughs> type of girl. And then there's just a wee bit too much naivety in there as well. And they wrap it up in a bow at the end with that uh, song, which is during the traveling montage, you know, there's no home like the one you've got, cause that home belongs to you, which is lovely. Except for the fact that you're watching Mittens, a hobo, someone without a home. That That is such a cruelly naive song to sing in a kind of a brainless way while around the homeless. That's a screw you moment. And then they finish on that. And it's like, well, that's a lovely moment because um, Penny took in this cat and this hamster. But she didn't have to. She could just have taken Bolt home and they would still have been strays. The hamster ain't getting home from where he is. That is a dead (laughs) hamster. As soon as he tries to cross the road, boom. It also, it doesn't apply to people who aren't happy with their homes or maybe have unpleasant home lives or maybe have dangerous home lives or maybe had deeply traumatic home lives for that to be sung in a sing song voice deeply excludes people who have to find their home with other people.
4: It's a a moment of naivety where the cynicism could be used to temper something to temper it out a bit.
0: Yeah. And um, like, you know, like, all you have to do is that exact moment and like have Bolt practically sing that song to her because like he's heard it from somewhere else and then have her go, yeah, well, you know, maybe you because you have a home. That's fine for you. And for, for that to be like part of her development as a character. And, and part
5: of his. Yeah. He learns that,
0: that he learns not everyone has what I have. And ultimately her sort of, you know, I, I'd been replaced thing. No, I, I was I was about her. I was abandoned. Is Jesse from Toy Story Two? His mm. I was replaced is Lotso from Toy Story Three. It's interesting that Lasseter came on board, and suddenly you got Buzz, Woody, Jesse and Lotso all in the same movie. <laughs> yeah, that
5: moment actually. Just uh, talk about that for a second when he sees he goes to the studio and he's about to um, approach Penny. Replacement and the bolts. Other dog, yeah, the other dog runs in from the side. There's a wonderful visual um setup in that because if you look at the way he's standing mm-hmm. there's a wall between um him and the trainer with the cage, which if he could see that, he would be able to see that there's you know direction going on that dog's being pushed towards penny um, and it 's going to run back for the tree afterwards it does it 's not genuine mm. um, but there's there's a wall dividing them off, and he stood in shadow because of the way the lights fall in the studio and again i don 't know if this was something that was intentional it 's so subtle and it 's not something that you would expect children to to get. But it struck me that that is very much about how it feels when you're in a period of depression. You can't see out of the shadow. Mm. You can have the facts all around you, but you can't see them.
0: You could have someone singing a sing-song voice, There's no home like the one you've got. And you're like, yeah, okay. You're going to need to leave me alone now.
5: Indeed. But I thought that was a very um, a poignant moment of realism. Yeah. For Bolt, albeit that he's not seeing the full picture.
0: So, with more development, maybe if this hadn't been mired down by almost being a completely different film, <laughs> they they could have actually turned it from a a good movie into a great movie.
4: Yeah, yeah. It seems like there are a lot of individual moments and elements and pieces of themes mm. that they could that a lot of them that they could have run with or made the foundation Is that, that co- would have that would have made an interesting movie.
0: So to go back the, to Rover Dangerfield, hey, Bolt came out this July. Whoa, put it back in. It ain't done yet. <laughs> <laughs> just needed a few more months of, uh, of story development to really just tighten it, you know?
4: Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it consistently follows any of those threads. It yeah. does in bits and pieces and moments. But
0: uh, if it had been consistent in following one of them, mm-hmm. I think we'd have a pretty strong movie. It, it, does, it asks you to just accept far too much the whole way through just accept things are fine just accept that this dog believes this just accept just accept moving on moving on it's it's quite brisk in it's uh, just accept this the other thing that occurred to me was that the the TV show that they've got that like they're, they're selling us this sort of michael bay style um chase sequence it was actually really serious and like 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 you know she she's in danger and she's like you know pushing herself through and she, but it's not like bolt let's roll and it's not done in that way that the the uh, ramped up chicken little is it seems to be done in a way that she's jason born but a 12 year old girl they don't make TV like that. If they're they going to make it appeal to kids, it's going to be fun. If they're going to make it appeal to adults, it's going to have like it'd be totally gripping or something like that or maybe fun. They don't make serious stuff like that for kids or they like it's not huge budget if if they do. Any more on Bolt? Oh, by the way, in France it is called Volt. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Um, one thing that occurred to me when uh, Dan, when you were talking about the pigeons, uh, they're the Greek chorus because there's three of them.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> or they're the good feathers because there's three of them.
5: Well, yeah. yes, I know, but the fact that they <laughs> turn up to tell you a little bit of exposition and then fly away again.
0: It's yeah, the good feathers. If I could
5: say something here, you look familiar, Joey. Look at this guy's mug. Yeah.
1: You know, I could have sworn I've seen this guy before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, I never forget a face. He never does. Oh, yeah, yeah. Never. Yeah, he's real good with the faces and stuff. Listen, listen, listen. The man with the green eye. Tell me what you know, birds.
0: <laughs> I think they were just expecting that like either the uh, people who are old enough to remember that would be not quite at the stage of having kids yet and might miss Bolt, or that the kids coming in would never have seen our maniacs. So they're, they're in the clear. Anyway, oh, uh, another little thing. Young Penny was played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who's gone on to be uh, quite an excellent actress herself. Oh, and Macho Man Randy Savage played a thug.
1: I am the cream in the World Wrestling Federation. And there is no doubt about it. Yeah, you mean Gene Okerlund. You know that I'm the cream of the crop. Oh, yeah. I I
0: forgot. And uh, Grey Delisle, that's Azula, played Penny's mother. So... Cheek there's Engelstein. Malcolm McDowell playing the movie oh, villain. He was awesome, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quite a good design as well. I kind of feel like uh, I you know, would have liked to see more of that. There are times when, uh, you know, while watching the Bolt TV show, I'm like, I kind of would just prefer to watch an extended, extrapolated 90-minute season of the Bolt TV show. And actually, on that note, if you watch all the way through to the end – Uh, and then just keep watching on the DVD. At least it it switched to this without me prompting it to, but it feels like a bit that sort of like works as a sort of a Marvel style closer. Uh, It's a four minute short with um, Rhino as the new star of the bolt TV show. And uh, it's it's kind of this sort of satisfying, it turns out to be just a dream that Rhino's having in the nice ending, wherein, you know, the idea is that they have not been dragged back to Hollywood or wherever they make this TV show. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a fun bit of business. And, um, you know, for, for kids who like Rhino, uh, it's, it's, just, it's a nice way to end it. My favorite gag
4: in the movie is actually a Rhino moment mm-hmm. when they're, uh, about to sneak into the pound mm-hmm. and his, his balls gotten all fogged up mm-hmm. uh, and he, yes. I mean, he's <laughs> he, he wipes clear the space for his eyes. It learns that they're about to go stealth mode and then wipes a little smiley face under that ooh stealth mode. Like and then it's sort of an excited, we're gonna do this. And then he wipes a little smiley face under his little eye holes in the fog. It's uh it's a great gag. Stealth did that
0: he say stealth mode, because that means I don't know it if he says stealth mode. I think he may just say
4: he may just say stealth and then like <laughs> and then uh draws the smiley face. But it's I I don't at this point after Chicken Little, I and Meet the Robinsons. I don't expect funny gags. <laughs> yeah. I, I expect gags that just kind of fall flat or are kind of like, ah, all right, that was that was pretty good. That that one actually did make me laugh. So it's, uh, I'm having fun again. This is great.
0: Oh, no, you're absolutely right. I'm confusing it with the uh, the end bit. It is a smiley face when he's breaking into the pound. It's the uh, the short, which I just mentioned, where he believes he's on the TV show, where he puts a frowny face instead.
4: Oh, a callback. Nice. Yeah. Call
0: that. yeah. Um, actually, this... I think probably the animation in this probably reminded me most of the Incredibles.
4: Yeah, a little bit. I could see that. Yeah. I do wonder if there was some tech sharing that happened once Disney acquired Pixar because they've they've mostly tried to keep those two studios as separate entities in culture and in lots of things. Like yeah. I don't Catmull and Lasseter don't want to make Disney animation into Pixar 2. They want it it's a different studio that deserves to have its own separate legacy. But I do wonder if they do share if they did share some tech around this time, because the, the jump up in lighting and rendering
0: is mm. really noticeable from Meet the Robinsons. I do believe you when you say that. But if you showed someone Big Hero 6 without the logos at the beginning or the end and never made any concessions to which studio it came from, the average person would not be able to tell you which. I agree. I, I, I th- wouldn't be able to tell you which. Yeah. That's not a bad no, I, thing. I They're both agree. such I... high quality bars now that Disney and Pixar like you know Pixar just released the good dinosaur is that was them right?
4: That was them yes.
0: Yeah. Most, I mean, that's the first Pixar I haven't seen at the cinema since um Cars 2. And, Same. Uh, yeah
4: oh, i did see cars 2 but i didn't see that one at the cinema i did I see did, it later
0: i did eventually see cars 2 at the cinema later in the kid screening but um uh, by all by all accounts um uh, good dinosaur is rubbish immediately after inside out which is one of the finest animated films i've ever seen and i can't believe we still haven't reviewed it we've reviewed chicken little but not inside out what the hell dan <laughs> <laughs> Side note, Sharon and I did finally see the good dinosaur just recently. We recorded this back in twenty fifteen, but we saw the good dinosaur just recently, and it had such a profound effect on us that we recorded a show on it. It wasn't a happy show. That's coming soon. So so Pixar have got wonderful and bad, and Disney are just doing wonderful, 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 but they like when they hit that bar of quality, it's the same bar now. Which it it didn't, like, when Pixar were doing Bugs Life and Disney were doing Tarzan, both films are excellent, but both are very distinct from one another. Yeah. So now they're playing the same game, and they're both playing it extremely well, but they have homogenized. That's true. Yeah. (sighs) I think it's inevitable. They're both run by the same people. (laughs) I would far rather they were both hitting that Pixar tone because, really, it's it's been more about Disney moving their ethos across to the way Pixar do things rather than the other way around. Um, yeah. I would rather them both be doing that than both of them aping DreamWorks or, worse, Blue Sky Studios.
4: I think that's a... Uh, I don't think that emulating them is going to be a problem anymore at this mm-hmm. point. Like, it's... The DreamWorks is... Like track record of film quality and success is actually I, I don't know if i can't say for sure about the success in terms of numbers but track record for quality is very uneven mm-hmm. blue skies is as well the peanuts movie is really great though ah,
0: and, we haven't actually talked about that yet dan um <laughs> continue with what you're going to say we'll talk
4: about Peanuts in a bit i i think emulation of each other until unless one of them starts falling like i feel like we're in the middle of second disney renaissance right now i feel like it's safe to say they've had a track record that is long of
0: we've already established they've they've already had their third they were on the fourth now
4: oh wow okay so yeah like in terms of oh like if we're counting like golden age silver age or whatever we call it and then then yeah then this is definitely their fourth peak and probably arguably the biggest peak they've ever had in terms of just earnings and straight across the board quality level yes they're on a hot streak of about eight or nine now that are pretty good. It, well, the Atlantis fact that they managed great. to
0: make a billion and then a couple of films later, another billion, as opposed to like they peaked with The Lion King. And then while all the ones after The Lion King were, to me, still fantastic, the audiences didn't respond as well.
4: Yeah. And it started getting uneven as soon as you started getting toward Fantasia 2000, which is okay. And then you yeah. get toward Dinosaur, which is rough. Emperor's New Groove is great, but didn't earn Atlantis's... Mm-hmm. Troubled Leland Stitch is great, Treasure yeah. Planet is pretty good, brother. And it starts, just. I close off
0: that study. Renaissance at, at Fantasia 2000 is the book end, like you know, this that, that is seems where like a good place. it stops being that. Like Tarzan's the last one in that, uh,
4: period. Yeah. I think that's a good place to cut it off at that point, yeah. but but yeah, at this point, if you even if we ignore Bolt and just say Princess and the Frog is where yeah. the start, start of, of fight and the Frog, begins. just
0: still going, even I uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh. Is a lovely film, even though nobody went to see it. So technically, it still scores on the quality stakes, even if it doesn't oh, hit agreed. the box office. Yeah.
4: But that means they're eight films in of straight quality.
0: Which they've which, never... Yeah, you're right. They've never hit, yeah. hit
4: eight before. And it's not showing signs... Uh, maybe Moana will be the one that drops it. It wasn't. At this point, they're on a hot streak of great movies and great earnings. And that's... Yeah. They're doing very well right now.
0: Yeah. Thank the Lord for their uh, management team right now, because uh, they... Uh, they like I said, they're going to have to do make some serious mistakes in Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars to really start, you know, stumbling. Now, Mr. Gunn was unavailable for comment. Like, yeah. uh, if they make a mistake in one of them, they can just make up for it in the others.
4: Yeah. Like at this point, I I think of the different branches of the Disney company as being they're not separate, but I think of them as succeeding and failing separately because
3: mm.
4: when we look at the Disney's history, when it goes through some of the really rocky times like uh, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Rescuers, Fox and the Hound. Just financially, they're going through really rough straits. The Disney company is doing great. Yeah. Disney animation is not. And when Disney animation starts faltering and the Disney company is doing otherwise great, the question comes up of, do we keep this one aspect of our company going anymore? And at a certain point, they said, no, let's start a new one. And that started the 3D arc that we started going on. Yeah. But even if, like, if Marvel Studios starts somehow not making money, then Disney Company will be fine. But that branch of the Disney Company might not be. If Disney Animation tanks for a long time and consistently and gets overshadowed, then maybe that will go away at some point. But Disney, the company at large, will probably continue. It's hard seeing something this big ever not existing. Yeah. Which is cool and scary.
0: So next time we'll be talking about The Princess and the Frog and it is going to be so bittersweet now. Cuz yeah, I, I when it's... this first when this first came out I loved it. And it was like, "Oh, wonderful. We're back." And then just every year that it's elapsed since then it's like, "We're not back. This yeah. backness has not occurred. This was it. This was the one time." And Winnie the Pooh is a sort of a postscript. So yeah, one of my absolute favorite Disney's, Musco and Clements wonderful film. If you guys haven't seen it yet, go get The Princess and the Frog*. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon, and our $15 tier gets sponsor credit every episode, so a major thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn bar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lusch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluze, David Garcia-Abril, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisham. And we will be back next week with the all-too-brief return of the classical cell animation style with the masterpiece that is The Princess and the Frog. So until next week, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And he can lick my bunghole, oh, motherfucker! I
2: have got so much to give I swear I do i may not have nine lives but this one feels brand new yes i've lived a good one i have tried to be true there are some things i never realized till i met you how the way
0: final point. That song was sung by Jenny Lewis of Rilo Kiley, who was in The Wizard, playing a tween girl with a broken home, who met two other runaways, and pretty much ends up as part of their family. Huh. So again, if the one you've got is a bad home, there's better out there.